Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 14th episode of the Not A Cast entitled My Mind Is My Weapon, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Tyrion 2, in which John and Tyrion talk about how life is unfair and do all sorts of other things too, like get attacked by direwolves. Um, <laughs> this episode is brought to you by our Lord's Commanders, or rather our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., and Hayden J. Thank you, gentlemen, very, very much. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We have a very special guest on the podcast today, a very important guy within a Song of Ice and Fire podcast, and <laughs> one of our favorite people in the fandom in general. Uh, welcome yes. to the podcast, Aziz of History of Westeros. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. It's fun to be here. I really love sitting down to chat about chapters and, and the Song of Ice and Fire in general. So when you guys invited me, I was like, of course. The only question was whether there'd be a time conflict. If there was any way for me to make it, I was definitely going to make it. And this is a great chapter. Uh, of course, eh, of course, I'm going to say that. But it really is a great chapter. <laughs> and this was a f extra fun for me uh, because a couple months ago, in a Facebook group, someone decided to start a thread about the covers. You know, like, hey, show us your versions of the books you've read. And someone shared their really old cover of A Game of Thrones. And I was like, oh, I used to have that one, but I lost my copy. I don't know where it is. <laughs> well, my one of my friends saw this post and was like, hey, Aziz, is this your copy? And I was like, yes. So I discovered my <laughs> copy, my ancient copy of Game of Thrones that was sitting on my friend's bookshelf for probably 10 years. And it was really fun rereading the chapter in that book because those old copies have these strange differences to them. For example, Vagar is spelled differently. Um, and, uh, <laughs> like, there's another, another H in there. Yeah, like, and I don't mean, you know, V-H-H. -H. It's not two H's in a row, but... <laughs> Vagar? Vagar? Yeah, there's another G after the G. Yeah, so it's just a weird, weird V-H-A-G-H-A-R? Like, yeah, how do you say that? Anyway. That's great. And also, there was uh, some things that are different in the appendix, like Rhaenyra... Targaryen back in the Dance of the Dragons originally was only a year older than Aegon II. And uh, Interesting. now that's, uh, you know, within a year or two, before even Clash of Kings came out, I think George had changed that. So that was a really early uh, swap, as, as, so to speak. But anyway, see, this is how excited I am to talk about Game of Thrones. I started talking anecdotes before I even introduced myself. <laughs> yes, Aziz, History of Westeros, that's me. And... You can find us at uh, on iTunes, on YouTube. We've been uh, making videos and podcasts for a while, and uh, we love this community and how many great conversations come from it. I'm expecting one here, so I'll stop taking up time with the intro. No, it's great. <laughs> I think uh, you guys are all going to be, by the time this episode publishes, you guys will all be back from Ice and Firecon, but as we're recording it, you guys are, what, three or four days out from Ice and Firecon? Oh, yeah, yeah, going there yep. Thursday. Absolutely, same here. Yeah, so we'll, uh, we'll uh, for our next episode, uh, Emmett will give uh, the breakdown of what happened at Ice and FireCon, because unfortunately I'm not able to go this year. I went last year, it was a lot of fun, and I, I recommend to everyone from the who's listening to this podcast to uh, to go for 2019. Maybe I'll go back, maybe I won't, we'll, we'll find out, but it's it's a fantastic, fun time all around. Hell yeah. Jeff has to defend his dancing title from last year at some <laughs> point, so... Actual this, footage this, was this was, is... was was captured of this event, much to Jeff's chagrin. <laughs> it's manipulated. It's all Photoshop. They just pasted me in there. M much to his blushing dismay. Poor man. <laughs> he tried to buy up all copies of off the internet, but 
<laughs> I, I, exactly. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't get. I he couldn't tried get all to them. pull the George Lucas with the Star Wars holiday special trick, but <laughs> alas, he fell short. Uh, it's, it, it never works out that way. I mean, like, uh, yeah. oh well. But uh, but yeah. So you guys, I'm sure you'll have a blast. And and again, for all of our, our listeners. Uh, Sign up for uh, for the 2019 one. I'm not sure when tickets are going to go on sale for the next one. Uh, they are not on sale, and by the time you listen to this, they won't be on sale anyways because the the con will be over. <laughs> but it's a great podcast. Lots of there's a great community there, and uh, yeah, there's. There, I just had I had a lot of fun last year, and I recommend everyone uh, try to go to at least one for sure. And if it's your first con, it's a great first con experience to go to for sure. Oh yeah, it's a very welcoming place for sure. I'm looking forward to this year, and it's going to be a great. Absolutely. Fun. So as we uh, transition into the actual podcast itself, our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Dunkin' Egg novellas, all of the histories, interviews, and the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So as we said uh, for the past couple weeks now, for those of you who contribute to our Patreon campaign, and thank you all very much for those of you who do, if you contribute $10 or more a month, you get the opportunity to ask us a question. And we got two really great questions and uh, really great questions. Wow. The first question is actually really great because it is ties in really well with the conversation Aziz and I were having on Twitter a few days ago, uh, probably about a week ago when you listen to this. Uh, so it's really good. So our first question comes from our newest Lord Commander, Hayden J. And again, thank you very much, Hayden, for, for joining us, who asks, quote, I once read a theory that Rohane Weber conceived a child by Dunk at a later time in the Dunkin' Egg timeline when she mar- when she was married to the Lord of Casterly Rock. This child is hidden away and be- becomes a kennel master to the Lannisters before saving his half-brother's life and giving rise to House Clegane. So, aside from Hodor, Brienne, and the Cleganes, does Dunk have any other living descendants in A Song of Ice and Fire? Aziz. Okay, well, so what I did... In in preparation for this, was we we talked like you said we talked about this on Twitter a little bit, and there's a lot of thoughts on on this out in the fandom that have existed for a little while. So what I did was I kind of decided to do a little bit of a ranking, and I took the the characters that are <laughs> most associated with this possibility, with this theory of being the descendants of Dunk, and of course to start off, George has confirmed that Dunk's descendants are out there, so we know that this is real. We don't know how many, we don't know who exactly for sure. Well, maybe in one case, but we don't. We do know for sure that he has descendants. So there's not a question of whether he even has them or not. So that in, in order, these top five, I would say, uh, Brienne is the most likely. Um, she is twice given uh, referred to with the line "thick as a castle wall," which is Dunk is over and over referred to as "thick as a castle wall," and that phrase only appears four times in A Song of Ice and Fire, and two of them are for Brienne. Um, we also have. The fact that she carries around Dunk's shield and remembers it being at Tarth when she was growing up in the in the armory, so that basically basically confirms that Dunk was at Tarth. And we also have a friend who asked George about this, and he mostly confirmed it that Brienne is one of his descendants. So that one's the most solid by far. But Hodor would be number two, and I think that's. Uh, because of the timeline matches extremely well with Bran's vision of a yes. knight as tall as Hodor kissing uh, old Nan. Or young Nan at the time, I suppose. <laughs> or just Nan. Mid, Mid-Nan, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> and then, but the one I have third, I think, is the one that's this, the least mentioned. And it's it's definitely 
been mentioned a few times out there in the fandom, but it's pretty rare. I, I wasn't able to find any posts um, on, say, WestRest.org. I think we found one brief mention on Reddit really long time ago, but just as an aside mention. And that's Gren. And the reason Gren is a fit is because he's also mentioned as thick as a castle wall, which by itself isn't a whole lot. But he's his nickname is Orox. And the thing is, the full saying from Dunk's uh, master, Sir Arlen, was thick as a castle wall, strong as an Orox. So Gren huh. has thick as the castle wall and the nickname Orox. And of course, he's big and strong and, and loyal and has a lot of dunk like traits, I suppose. Not the smartest guy. <laughs> and now we and then after that, we just get into characters who are not don't have a whole lot going for them. Besides being big, we have Small Paul, who, to be fair, Small Paul is also referred to as thick as a castle wall. And again, only four times does that phrase appear in A Song of Ice and Fire. So it's, and it's pretty specific. And then fifth, we would have the Cleganes, which really, they only have size going for them. I don't know that, and that's not a lot to go on. So, but if we're making a top five, they come in at fifth because there's nobody else. So, um, unless I miss somebody, that's, that's how I would rate it anyway. That's, that's my, my, uh, my list. Your mileage may vary. <laughs> I, I would agree actually with that list in totality. Uh, I, I do like the, uh, the theorizing that are, that, uh, that Hayden makes about, a child hidden away that becomes a kennel master to the Lannisters, and that gives rise to House Clegane. Uh, I, I've never heard that theory previously, but I—I uh, I mean, I, I, it's entirely possible. But I, I do also want to—I I also do believe that not every tall person in A Song of Ice and Fire has to necessarily be uh, related to. Um, to Duncan the Tall, although I, I like the idea, and I was saying this on, on Twitter, about um, about Dunk being the kind of the Paul Bunyan of Westeros and sowing his seeds, in this case seeds being children, all over the, the all over Westeros in the way that, that, uh, that Paul Bunyan seeds all of the trees all over the United States or over the Americas. Uh, I, I only have one other addition to that, and that's the guy who's known as Weber, who is one of the windblown sellswords, who has the uh, the spider tattoos. On him, someone had mentioned that he has some similarities to uh, Duncan. He's he's small, from what I understand, uh, but he's probably a descendant of the Webbers at some point because the Weber uh, sigil is the, uh, the the spider web. Um, I have to look it up. I, I should have looked it up before this, but I believe there are some other similarities, despite the fact that there's a size difference and that there's some similar language use, similar to how Gren is thick as a castle wall mm. and uh, as strong as an Aurochs. Uh So that, I think that's that's my only other addition to the uh, potential possibilities uh, among Dunk's descendants. Although there might be more, those we see is as the story develops. And uh, because I had to step away for a second, Aziz, did you mention uh, Kristen from the Facebook group asking George about... Yeah. The, um, I didn't mention her by name, so it's good that you did. I just said that someone we know or a friend, yeah. Okay. I couldn't remember okay. the specific detail. That's I couldn't remember her exact question. That was part of it. I know that it happened at Balticon, but I don't remember how she worded it. But I, yeah, she got it out of him, sort of, <laughs> mostly, like 99%. She's she, Basically, her question was like, when are, when are you going to be able to confirm that, or when are we going to see that Brienne is, is a descendant of Duncan? He said, and George says something like, oh, and all in good time. You know, just, you just have to wait and wait around and I'll, I'll get around to it eventually. Yeah, I think it's a great point about Gren. I had never put that together before uh, and the language connection is really strong there. I wonder if people don't bring it up as much because the kind of enjoyment in finding dunk descendants is in finding dunk descendants who in some way mirror the kind of themes and arc of his character mm. uh, in terms of dealing with knighthood and the journeys you have kind of Brienne and the Cleganes and I guess Gren well he does have traits in common with dunk 
he doesn't uh, have the same kind of relationship to knighthood, which doesn't mean he's not a descendant. I think the, the way Martin describes him means he probably is. But I guess that's uh, there's less uh, less room for theorizing in it because I think uh, what people love most about the Brienne descendants is that she's trying to she's taken up Dunk's place as the yeah the a knight who remembered his vows without even having ever having taken those vows. There, there was one other funny thing about the the Gren reference, which is that he tells Sam that people call him thick as a castle wall because he's trying to tell Sam that being called Sam the Slayer is okay. He, Sam doesn't like the nickname, and he's trying to <laughs> comfort him. He's like, look, you know, they call me Aurochs. Aurochs aren't smart, but they're strong and, and tough, and that's a compliment, and you really did kill that other. He was trying to make him feel better about it. But that's funny. He says, they, they say that I'm thick as a castle wall, but we never actually see anyone say that to him. <laughs> so it's all off screen. <laughs> but, but apparently it happens. So <laughs> You think it would be like his, uh, his parents, right? Potentially be Ooh. the people that would tell him that he's thick as a castle wall and that would potentially sure. descend from, from Duncan the Tall, that's right? That's a good idea. Potentially. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just theorizing cool. here. Spitballing. <laughs> So yeah, that's uh, that's our uh, that's our first question, and and thank you for it. That's uh, provided a lot of thoughts, a lot of thinking from us, and uh, we appreciate it. Our right, next question comes from Lady Emily A, one of our Sworn Sword patrons, and it's uh, which scene from season six or seven of Game of Thrones are you most looking forward to reading in The Winds of Winter slash Dream of Spring, and why? Mm, that's a tough one. There's so many good answers to that one, especially. Uh, Scenes that will be have some commonalities between books and show, but what will in all likelihood be somewhat different. So, uh, what do you think on that one, Aziz? Well, um, I, I'm excited to see some of the locations we haven't been to get explored. As we as we're going to talk about more in this chapter, the way George uses history is a little, or perhaps a lot, different than what we've seen in other fantasy or even other fiction. And so I'm looking forward to seeing his descriptions of, of some of these places that we haven't seen a lot of. Uh, Dragonstone, something we talked about uh, right before started recording, and that one struck me pretty interestingly because while we were talking about it, we realized, yeah, we you know we, we, we know a bit about the outside of Dragonstone and how it was, you know, some details about how it was founded, but like we don't really get that good a look at it. It's not that well sure. described. I mean, not, not not that well described. It's not very thoroughly described, I should say. So that could be fun, and, and through Danny's point of view, I guess that's pretty good. Um, I, I definitely this is a good this is a question that, like you guys said, it was. Um, I thought I started thinking about it right before we started recording. So, <laughs> so I, I, I'm, I'm probably going to be like two hours from now. I'm going to be like, oh, wait, that one. Yeah, because like you said, Emmett, there's so many good possibilities. And, and of course, there's a few others that we don't actually know for sure that they'll actually happen in the books. But we're only kind of sure. No, that's the, I mean, that's the thing, right? How much of what we saw in season six and season seven and what we'll see in season eight are going to be in The Winds of Winter and Dream of Spring? I think that's a question a lot of, of book fans have. Uh, right now, uh, given that we, at this point in, in early to mid-2018, The Winds of Winter is still not out, uh, we, we do hope that it will be out at some point, uh, that we can read it. But there there are certain things that I think maybe you can, that George has confirmed that will be, or that the showrunners have confirmed that will be in, in, in the books. You have things like Shireen's Burning, you have Hodor being Hold the Door, things like Melisandre being super old. Uh, I would say none of those things are necessarily things that I'm especially... I mean, I think Hold the Door will probably be really good. I think uh, Shireen Burning will be extremely uh, difficult to read, for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's very <laughs> difficult to watch. Um, I, I, I still have a hard time, re when I rewatch that episode, rewatching that scene, 
it just kind of hurts my soul. Um, but I, I, I was thinking about this and I did think of, uh, two things and then I just thought of a third right now. So I'll, I'll be, I'll try to be as brief as I can. So in the, uh, the battle of the bastards, which occurs in season six, episode nine, you have the, uh, Jon Snow fighting against the Boltons and you have the, the, the Vale Knights coming in and saving John and his army. And I had thought that maybe they had transposed that scene from the Winds of Winter where you have Stannis. And we have our first canonical reference to Stannis in this episode. So we've fulfilled our quota for so far. I'm sure he'll, he'll be coming up again, as always. Um, check, Mark. Yep. Check. <laughs> and, um, but I thought that that might be a transposing of Stannis fighting against the Boltons and it being kind of a tough fight. And then you have the Manderly Knights showing up and breaking the, uh, the actually it's not the Boltons who are riding off for Stannis, it's actually the Freys. So you have the Bol- the the Manderleys coming in and riding up against uh, the Freys as they're battling Stannis and taking out the Frey army. I, thought, I think that would be really cool. Um, the other one I, I'm, I really am, I'm fairly positive will be in the Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring will be Daenerys arriving on Dragonstone. And it's a really cool scene from season seven, episode one, because it's all silent. And I would love to get inside of Danny's head because you, she has that whole thing about uh, to go forward, I must go back. And that seems like that she's going to be coming back into Dragonstone. I wonder how that is going to work itself out in Danny's mind as she's on Dragonstone and seeing the place where she was born and the traditional home of House Targaryen. I think that'll be a really cool uh, a scene as well. And then the final thing is uh, similar to Aziz's in that um, George has said that we will visit High Garden and Casterly Rock in the Winds of Winter. And I am excited definitely to see uh, what who the point of view character is going to be for visiting those locations and what differences there might be from the show. And also to see what plot events are going to transpire from there. I, I've been curious about the Casually Rock one uh, specifically because I don't really have any good ideas about what will happen there. I think the High Garden one will be likely something with Euron or Samuel Tarly or um, getting back with Garland and, uh, and Willis Terrell who are back in the reach trying to throw back the Ironborn there. I think it's a good place for them to possibly pop up there and to have Samo meeting them as they're fleeing from Old Town, but I guess we'll have to see. Uh, what about you, Emma? What do you what, what scenes are you most looking forward to reading from season six and seven of the show in the Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring? Well, mine follow up pretty directly on your as I'm very interested to see how the fall of the Boltons goes in the books. I think Ramsay killing Roos is very likely. I think that's set up pretty strongly in a dance with dragons in terms of both motivation. Uh, between the two, going back to Ramsay's childhood and the specific uh, trigger of uh, Walda's pregnancy. But I agree with you, I think uh, Stannis is the more likely uh, instigator of the Bolton's downfall in the books, and they kind of just kind of copied and pasted that plot onto John. And uh, I am curious to see specifically the downfall of Ramsay with uh, Stannis and Theon as the ones kind of presiding over instead of John and Sansa. I think there'll be some similar emotional tone struck, but uh, kind of a different experience filtered through those two characters specifically, and I'm really interested in that. And yeah, uh, going on the what you said about the Reach, uh, Sam in Old Town, I think, will start a lot like it was in the show, with him kind of being frustrated with the, the gray sheep running the Citadel and stuck at the lower uh, rung of things there. But uh, I think... Yeah, uh, Euron's a different influence in the book, so that'll uh, add a different layer to things in Old Town, the kind of struggle between the uh, rationalist skeptic hierarchy there and the magic that Sam knows is, is coming back in force. So I'm definitely looking forward to seeing the books expand on that. Yeah, the, the whole Old Town area with Euron and Sam is the part of the books I'm looking forward to most going forward. 
Yeah, for sure. And uh, if you guys are interested in, in, in hearing that a little bit more about that, uh, both Emmett and Aziz, they did a History of Westeros episode all about Euron Greyjoy, which does talk about a number of those uh, fantastic points and, and the fate of Old Town and, and what Euron is up to, Euron, Euron <laughs> is up to in, in, uh, in Old Town and, uh, and his potential to do some sort of Eldritch Apocalypse event t- down there. So that'll be a lot of fun oh, yeah. to, to definitely get a hold of. Any day now. Any day now, my friend. <laughs> That's right. Should be out next week, probably, at this point. That's kind of my um, too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, thank you, uh, Emily A., for, for your question. And, uh, again, if, if you're interested in learning more about our Patreon, you, you are welcome to check that out at patreon.com forward slash asof. And if you contribute $10 or more, you can ask us a question and we will answer it. And uh, and yeah, I'll have to throw up another post on, on Patreon soon because we're actually out of questions. That was our last question right now. But transitioning over to, finally, to Tyrion's second chapter in the Game of Thrones, I'll do a quick synopsis. Not quick, actually, again, because it's never quick anymore. These things are getting super long. <laughs> I apologize for that in advance. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, so this is a Game of Thrones Tyrion 2. The North went on forever, and so it does in Tyrion's second chapter in Game of Thrones. Tyrion Lannister, Jon Snow, Benjen Stark, Ghost, and two Lannister guardsmen are on their way up to the Wall from Winterfell. As they progress north of Winterfell, the air grows colder and quieter. You see, the North altogether is both the largest of the Seven Kingdoms and yet also has the lowest population density. Tyrion takes this in as he takes in all things. He also takes a really keen interest in his surroundings. The King's Road was their guide to Castle Black, and at first it was well-trafficked with farms, holdfasts, and rude inns along the road. But as they journeyed north, and the north grew into a dense wood that is known as a wolfwood, and then the rising mountains, it became something a bit more. In the woods, Tyrion and the company heard a number of wolves howling in the distance among the sparsely populated lands. One night, they stayed at a holdfast in the wood, and they were joined by Yorin, a Night's Watch recruiter, and his quote-unquote volunteers, rapers. They chose the Night's Watch over castration. Tyrion feels sorry for Jon, knowing that the boy would soon have these less-than-stellar individuals as his sworn brothers. The weather grows colder and colder while the ride grows more difficult. Tyrion finds conversation with Benjen Stark difficult, but when the First Ranger offers Tyrion a warm cloak, thinking that the wharf will decline it, Tyrion accepts. The Lannisters never declined, graciously or otherwise. The Lannisters took what was offered, Tyrion thinks. On the 18th day of their journey, they set camp in the Wolf's Wood, and there Tyrion settles under his cloak and with a book to read. The book is about the properties of dragon bones and their uses. Tyrion always had a fascination with dragons. He recalls a time when he visited the Red Keep and sought out the dragon skulls. He expected them to be impressive, but he didn't expect to find them beautiful. But he did find them beautiful. Nineteen skulls in total remained at the Red Keep. His fascination was magnified when he saw the largest, the three largest, Vagar, Meraxes, and Beleriand the Black. The dragons of Aegon the Conqueror and his sister wives were instrumental in the Targaryens winning a kingdom for themselves. These skulls were so large that they could swallow an aurochs whole or even a hairy mammoth from Ibn whole as well. Tyrion then considers the history behind the dragons in the Field of Fire, something that we'll be talking about at the end of this episode, that ended the Garter Kings of the Reach and, for, and forced King Lorne of the Rock to abdicate his kingship. He recalls in precise detail the number of soldiers each army had, their tactics, the location of the battlefield, and then finally how the Targaryens used all three of their dragons to end the battle, killing some 4,000 Reach and Westermen in the battle. And then Jon arrives, asking Tyrion why he reads so much. Tyrion asks Jon to tell him what he sees. Jon is suspicious, but then Tyrion tells Jon that he's a dwarf, a fortunate dwarf to be born the son of Lord Tywin Lannister of Castle Rock. He then tells Jon why he reads so much. 
My mind is my weapon. My brother has his sword, King Robert has his warhammer, and I have my mind. And a mind needs a book like a sword needs a whetstone if it's to keep its edge. John seems to understand and then asks Tyrion what he's reading about. Dragons, Tyrion replies. What good is that, John asks. The dragons are all dead. So they say. Sad, isn't it? When I was your age, I used to dream of having a dragon of my own, Tyrion replies. John remains suspicious, and then Tyrion proceeds to tell John that he used to start fires in the bowels of Casterly Rock and stare at the flames for hours, pretending they were dragon fire. Sometimes he'd imagine his father, Tywin, burning, foreshadowing, and sometimes his sister, Cersei, potential foreshadowing. John is horrified. Tyrion begins taunting John, telling John that he's sure the boy has had similar dreams. No, I wouldn't, John exclaims. Tyrion then twists the knife, telling John about how Catelyn's treatment of him was like her treatment of one of her own, and Rob. Rob liked John because the heir of Winterfell would get Winterfell while John headed off to the Night's Watch. John grows increasingly angry. The Night's Watch is a noble calling, he yells. But Tyrion tells John he's too smart to believe that. All those rapers are now a part of the Night's Watch. They're your brothers, John. But it's okay. You'll freeze your balls off and that's fine. You can't breed anyways. The Night's Watch way. John is now screaming at Tyrion to stop. And then Tyrion begins to realize that he might have taken his teasing a little bit too far and steps towards John, but then Ghost appears out of nowhere and jumps him. Tyrion falls to the ground and is genuinely afraid of what the direwolf do. He asks John to help him. John tells him to ask nicely. Tyrion swallows his Lannister pride and asks John for help nicely. And John tells Ghost to get down. Why did he attack me? Tyrion asks. Maybe he thought you were a grumpkin, John replies. Tyrion bursts into laughter and Tyrion shares his skin of wine with John. The bastard boy comes to realize that Tyrion is right about the Night's Watch and the types of brothers he'll have there, and Tyrion compliments John's perceptive abilities. Most men would rather deny a hard truth than face it. They return to camp, enjoy a bowl of squirrel stew, black bread, and cheese. Tyrion shares his wineskin with everyone there, and then settles in to rest in the shelter his men made for him. The last thing he sees is Jon Snow staring deep into the flames of the campfire. Tyrion smiles sadly and goes to sleep. And that is a Game of Thrones, Tyrion 2. So, what do we think about this chapter? First thoughts. Well, it's definitely similar similar in a lot of respects to our last chapter, Eddard 2. It's another road trip chapter uh, uh, heading out from Winterfell that focuses on the relationship between two characters. Last time it was Ned and Robert. This time it's Tyrion and Jon. Uh, it's another very character-centric chapter as opposed to big movements of the plot as we're focusing in on what these characters think about themselves and their dreams and their, and their lives and each other. Uh, but in many respects, though, it's the opposite of Edward II. We're going north rather than south, uh, back to the world of the prologue that we encounter at the beginning of this book, the world of ice and, and whispers in the trees and the sense that something was watching you from the night. Uh, right from the opening lines, you get this sense. The north went on forever, as you said, Jeff. Tyrion Lannister knew the maps as well as anyone but a fortnight on the wild track that passed for the King's Road up here had brought home the lesson that the map was one thing and the land quite another. So it's uh, Tyrion realizing that there's a kind of a wildness and hardness to the north that is different from any other part of Westeros he knows and uh, is, is not conveyed by all even the 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 education that is, is, is propped up and presented as the best part of Tyrion in this chapter. Even that has oh, not yeah. prepared him for what the north is really like. Uh, that the... He's, he's kind of passing out of civilization, like he says, the wild track that passed for the King's Road. And uh, much as Tyrion is mocked by the, his, his peers at court, that is the area in which he feels most comfortable and kind of most understood. And the, the area of the North, 
uh, Tyrion kind of likes it and is interested in it because it's so different from everything else he encounters. And you sense that kind of uh, wary fascination in this chapter, that Tyrion is interested in being in these new environments, talking to these new people. But he also gets the sense that he's not welcome here. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I found a really small connection. I'm not sure if it's it's actually intentional on Martin's part or not. But uh, in John's fourth chapter in A Dance with Dragons, he tells Stannis something like the map is not the land and the land is not the map, which is something that Tyrion thinks in this chapter here. And he attributes and, and uh, John back in A Dance with Dragons attributes it to Ned Stark. But I do wonder whether maybe Tyrion said something to him about that off page. I'm not sure. But or just kind of a similar wording that uh, that Martin is using there. But uh, but yeah, uh, I, I've been blabbering enough. Aziz, what do you think about this chapter? Yeah, um, I think it's really great. I think the following that this pattern of uh, introducing a topic will by or introducing a chapter by showing the surroundings, you know, introducing us to where we're at, especially important early in the book when we're every area is new, and then giving us background, and then giving us some character development or, so, or a little bit of action is is a rough pattern we see in some places, but in this one, I yeah. think it's it's. It's both. He's both setting that pattern since we're still really early in the series, relatively speaking. But he's also breaking it because the history in this chapter has nothing to do with where they are, and that's really I just like that a lot. So that uh, that stands out to me, and I also just like that it's it's really tight. It does these things um, really smoothly, and it's a it's a relatively short chapter, and. You can see it move through like that. That pattern exists elsewhere, but it's usually not so distinct as this. It's it's oftentimes it's a little more, a little less structured or a little more uh, th- in a different order or that this and that. But yeah, it's it's a lot more on display here, and uh, that's it's a kind of a, as a template for how a lot of the chapters work out. So that's kind of good to have early on to point to. Yeah, it's got a great atmosphere to it that clearly Martin is trying to establish right away. In terms of, uh, you know, it's, it's very cinematic. You can sense, like, Tyrion watching the sun set behind the trees and, like, the cold winds are coming down from the mountains and he's tugging his his, uh, his borrowed skin around him. And, uh, like I said, it's a dramatic contrast to the last chapter where Ned was heading south towards the court, towards King's Landing, towards the kind of intrigue and hustle of the world of Varys the Spider and dealing with the exiled Targaryens over the sea, you know, affairs of state as Robert said, and dealing with the camping full of too many ears. And, you know, the the mood in this chapter is, is very much a contrast to that. And it's there's the quote, They left Winterfell on the same day as the king, amidst all the commotion of the royal departure, riding out to the sound of men shouting and horses snorting, to the rattle of wagons and the groaning of the queen's huge wheelhouse as a light snow flurried about them. The king's road was just beyond the sprawl of castle and town. There the banners and the wagons and the columns of knights and freeriders turned south, taking the tumult with them, while Tyrion turned north with Benjamin Stark and his nephew. It had grown colder after that, and far more quiet. One thing I like about Martin's writing is how he writes uh, armies and like mobile courts and just like large gatherings of people. I like how he writes the King's progression in Game of Thrones. I like how he likes Renly's court at Bitterbridge in A Clash of Kings, Mance's uh, as John says, not even an army, a whole people come together in a storm of swords. Tywin's army at Harrenhal is another great example. And uh, I like how the contrast is used here where you get you get the sense of all kind of the noise and chaos and kind of self-indulgence of the court as represented by Cersei's wheelhouse. And uh, that they're getting a last taste of that before they enter this, yeah. this kind of quieter, colder, more frightening realm. 
Uh, and for, for John, of course, that's part of his coming-of-age story. This is the world he has devoted himself to. Tyrion uh, is almost more tourist in a way, and in a way that kind of extends across a lot of his arc. He's that way in A Dance with Dragons, too. Uh, but he kind of has a more outside jaundiced perspective in this chapter that allows him to uh, kind of cut down John's ideals about the Night's Watch. I think it also is a, a nice way to set up Winterfell for the future. You have everybody there, and the fact that they're all leaving at the same time is pretty meaningful. And maybe it's just a perspective that comes from years later, because it's hard for me to imagine what I was thinking when I read this chapter the first time so long ago. But it, it seems now, at least <laughs> it, if not then, it certainly seems so now that most of these characters are going to find their way back here. Maybe not even most. Half, yes. of, roughly half, maybe. You know? <laughs> Some reduced <laughs> number of these characters will make it back here for more for you know some large climax or multiple climaxes. Uh, that are yet to come. Um, some sort of showdown with the others at Winterfell, uh, show, other showdowns with the battles of ice and the Boltons and everything, oh, all yeah. that stuff. There's just... Very little happens in the North at first other than everybody meeting there. Then they all go off in their separate directions, and then, but then the North, you know, by the time Theon starts to do his thing, you start to get, you know, real action and everybody gets drawn back there because their home is destroyed and things go the way they, go, they do and... Uh, now everyone's being drawn back, so that's kind of yeah, cool. Yeah, and, and that, that is something that, that George R. R. Martin has said, is that his intent in The Winds of Winter is to start bringing the threads back together. So we get in the first couple chapters in A Game of Thrones, besides the Danny chapters, we get all the threads kind of going apart. You've got Jon and Tyrion going north, you've got Ned and the girls going south. You've got Bran and Catelyn staying at Winterfell for the time being, um, but they're going to start. They're going to start migrating out as uh, all from all those places as well. But even by the end of A Dance of Dragons, you start bringing the threads back together. You've got John saying he's going to march on Winterfell, and he's stabbed. Of course, you've got Theon and Asha that are outside of Winterfell as well. And one of the cool things I really love about those Dance with Dragons Asha chapters, especially, is you really get in depth on the Wolfswood, which which occupies a fair part of the. Uh, the, the set piece for for this chapter as well and and how it is really kind of a spooky place to really be living in and I, I know for Asha in her her case she's there for upwards of 60 days inside the Wolfswood and they just can't get out because it's snowing so hard there but yeah I, I do love um, all of these different characters coming back as well you have the uh, you also have um, Rickon potentially coming back to Winterfell which Davos is on his way to get him and uh, you have Littlefinger telling Sansa in A Feast for Crows that his plan is to marry Sansa to Harry the heir and march north on Winterfell Arya looks I, I don't think she's going to be in Bravos forever she's definitely coming back to Westeros and I imagine that Winterfell will be a great spot for her to, to kind of get back in as well and we saw a version of all of these threads coming back together in of course Game of Thrones season 6 and season 7 so yeah definitely a, a, a great uh conflagration of, of people that are returning back to Winterfell because it looks like it's going to be the central place where winter fell and in this case the others coming and that being where where winter fell as well but uh but here it's it's kind of quiet it's nice uh, it's almost kind of Tolkien-esque if, if you want to call it that this chapter especially yeah they're described as a curious fellowship by Tyrion their traveling group uh, if you count ghost uh they are nine matching Tolkien's fellowship uh Tyrion describes them as eight along with the wolf huh. Uh, and that fits the, the kind of mood of this chapter, which is much more, uh, yeah, nature-oriented, uh, feels 
I mean, it's not survivalist because they have plenty of resources, but it feels much more like they're just camping out in the wilderness. Whereas in Ned's chapter, you feel very much the presence of the king's court and the, the, uh, the, it's the most relatively luxurious way to travel across country in, in a medieval time, to the extent that that can be luxurious, uh, Robert's <laughs> court is doing so. Um, whereas in, in this chapter, uh, you have a, a much more focus on, on nature imagery, and that fits the, the sense of Winterfell as... Uh, the the lodestone, the place where everything came together and everything is kind of sprang out of, because Winterfell, the reason that Winterfell is able to act as a, as a hub in these later books is because it means so many different things to so many different people. You'll have the Starklings with their very personal connections to it as, as a place of home and family. You have Theon's more complicated relationship to it. Uh, for the Stark vassals, it's the you know the, the the hearth of the North, the heart and hearth of the North, where you can gather for common uh, safety and protection. Uh, for Stannis, it's more political victory, a sign that he can uh, have the North at his back while he deals with the others. And of course, at some level, the most important level, perhaps Winterfell, is a magically significant location in terms of its heart tree, the connection to the children of the forest and the three-eyed crow. And uh, I think you can see all of those elements kind of spilling out of Winterfell now along with the characters. The more kind of political stuff is going south with Ned as he tries to bring the northern values we saw he impress, impress upon Bran in the opening of this book. He tries to bring those with varying degrees of success to King's Landing. <laughs> Whereas in this, chap- in this chapter, we're more seeing the kind of the uh, forbidding nature part of the North, the part of the North that is is a scary concept for Southern armies to deal with, the, the place of snow, the place where Tyrion really feels like an outsider. Uh, he describes the land uh, west of the road were flint hills, gray and rugged with tall watchtowers on their stony summits. To the east, the land was lower, the ground flattening to a rolling plain that stretched away as far as the eye could see. Stone bridges spanned swift, narrow rivers, while small farms spread in rings around holdfast walled in wooden stone. The road was well trafficked, and a night for their comfort, there were rude inns to be found. So there's, yeah, there's a Tolkien sense of uh, you're on the border between civilization and the wild. You're in Bree, you know. There's still you're in, you're still got inns, you still got people around you, but it's starting to get a little wilder. And then the next paragraph. They're into Aragorn territory. Three days' ride from Winterfell, however, the farmland gave way to dense wood, and the king's road grew lonely. The flint hills rose higher and wilder with each passing mile, until by the fifth day they had turned into mountains. Cold, blue-gray giants with jagged promontories and snow on their shoulders. And this this part I love. When the wind blew from the north, long plumes of ice crystals flew from the high peaks like banners. That's such a great, another great contrast with the uh, King's Progression going south. They've got the royal banners flying, Robert's dancing standards of the stag. Uh, but up here, this is, this is where ice rules. This is where ice has its banners and, and nature is in charge. And it's not necessarily, it's not always hostile. Like when Bran gets into the same kind of part of the north in the Storm of Swords, he feels very much at home here and the people he meets make him feel very much at home here. Because yeah. uh, this is his territory and he's the ultimate Stark and the, you know, the land is the king and all that good stuff. Uh, but from from Tyrion's perspective, coming to this land for the first time, not knowing anything about it, not knowing anything about the people, uh, the ice banners definitely come off as hostile. That yeah, he, like- is, he is he has gone beyond uh, like the political realm of Westeros, and he's, he's somewhere older. Uh, those those eyes that watch that love him not. It's funny because I didn't know. I, I I did a quick 
look through this document when you guys shared it with me and I missed this quote and it was like, oh, we need this quote. And they're like, oh, wait, you did get it because I have the same thing. <laughs> I love that last this sentence you particularly drew attention to because I, we know that the, the domain of, of the ice banners is those banners are getting called <laughs> at some point. <laughs> and, exactly uh, right. Yeah. Those vassals are going to obey, unlike human vassals, which may or may not, you know, we can picture uh, what's her name, Liana Mormont from TV, saying, "You know, you answered the call." Well, yeah, Winter's vassals will answer the call. <laughs> they they won't uh, they won't say no to that. So no, it's really cool. All these things have so much more meaning rereading them again after just be, even just because of the TV show. You know, I mean, obviously, I've yeah, it's oh, not sure. like it's been years since I've read this, but it, it I haven't read this since see you know season seven or. Maybe yeah. not even season six. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a palpable sense of trepidation. You know, you know, there's something out there that 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 means you ill. And Martin just gets that unease so well. I mean, Jeffrey, you're talking about the Wolfswood and a Dance with Dragons and the way it feels like Stannis gets almost trapped in it. Like it, yeah. it feels it feels like the Mirkwood not in the uh, pure darkness sense, but in the sense of where it, it feels like it's a maze or it's like a fairy tale trap where it's like it's not playing fair and mm -hmm. it's almost like kind of the nature is almost taunting you in a way and you get that sense here with uh, uh, this quote from Tyrion with the mountains a wall to the west the road veered north by northeast through the wood a forest of oak and evergreen and black briar that seemed older and darker than any Tyrion had ever seen the wolfswood Benjamin Stark called it and indeed their knights came alive with the howls of distant packs and some not so distant and of course that this is especially like I said, hostile because we're seeing it through Tyrion's POV, not through the eyes of a Stark who might feel a little more at home with a pack of wolves, even, you know, unfriendly, hungry wolves, because there's this there's the connection. There's the sense this is my home, this is my land, these are my people. For for Tyrion, he's he's just he's he's wandering uh into onto unfriendly ground. And uh, you know, we know from the previous chapter that politically speaking, Ned is an enemy of the Lannisters and working to counter Tywin and Jamie and Cersei. And now in this chapter, we're kind of seeing a more, like, symbolic, I guess you'd say, symbolic kind of emotional echo of that, where you have the Stark yeah. land kind of re reacting in anger, almost in anger to Tyrion crossing it. Like, of course, that's not literally true. The wolves howl and the wolves sweat every night, but that's kind of the sense I get reading that passage. Like, like the land is watching Tyrion and isn't, isn't happy he's here, in the same way that the crypts aren't happy when anyone who doesn't belong there gets down there. The north, you know... The North is, is warm and friendly to the people who should be there. But if the yes. North decides you don't belong there, it is it is as uh, unfriendly as the fires of R'hllor, for sure. I think that there's a, a kind of a cool hidden little bit of history here, too, that's, that's something Tyrion wouldn't necessarily be aware of. I guess if we're being meta, it's more likely that George hadn't written this yet. But, <laughs> but it works because Tyrion wouldn't necessarily know this. And it's that uh, in the World of Ice and Fire, we learn that House Blackwood may have originally ruled this area and that they lost some sort of ancient conflict or series of conflicts with the Starks and the Wolf's Wood used to be called the Blackwood and this works out for a lot of reasons because well hey this Wolf of the Wood is dark and old and that this quote from Benjen backs it up pretty well and also there is no Blackwood down near Castle Blackwood or Raven Tree Hall. There isn't a Blackwood there either, so where is huh. this Blackwood? So it, it fits that it would be this. So that's pretty cool. A little bit of history there. Yeah, I like that. And you know, the, the thing about this chapter too is there's they keep occupying these abandoned holdfasts and, fort and not fortresses necessarily, but that people have, have kind of abandoned you. And I don't know if that's necessarily 
when George was writing this, he meant House Blackwood, but he could very well easily go back and be like, oh, well, this used to be a Blackwood holdfast. This is where we fought against the Starks 600 years prior to to events here, if, or whether the Blackwoods fought against the Starks 600 years prior to, to events there. So, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a, the Wolf's is a great location. I, I really enjoy it. Um, and, and I do like the idea of it being this kind of like fairy realm, this kind of evil fairy realm where there's, it's, it's up against, it's trying to, to kill the people who are invading it, who don't belong in it. Um, definitely in A Dance with Dragons, when Stannis' army is progressing through there and Asha starts being like, we're on the 30th day of being three days from Winterfell <laughs> and we're on this, tw- this 27th day of our 15 day march from from uh, Deepwood Mott to Winterfell uh, definitely does give you that feel of this this is an old place that does not like outsiders trespassing into it for sure yeah and even if Martin didn't have the specific history of the Blackwoods in mind when he wrote that he had the aesthetic in mind he, you know, yes. if you look at Raven Tree Hall and we get there in a dance with dragons the very first line is Raven Tree Hall was old <laughs> and you get this description of like the gnarled granite and the dead tree and Titus Blackwood's badass uh, feather cloak and like Martin ha- Martin knew what he wanted the North to feel like and look like and he knew he, the 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 emotions he wanted you to get out of it. He had that in mind. I think he he that kind of trickled down to specific plot details as he needed them. But I, I think if you look at this chapter as a mood piece and it's really effective as that, I think you get a sense of how Martin thinks about the North. And I think you can you can see that in the dialogue as well. As uh, another contrast we have here to Edward Two is in that chapter it was all about uh, old friends getting back in touch with each other, about Ned Robert reuniting after so many years and trying to get a sense of how each other was going to operate as king and hand respectively. Uh, in this chapter, uh, fitting with what I was talking about earlier about uh, Tyrion as kind of an uh, outsider and a stranger here, uh, it's about uh, strangers uh, forming a, a bond and starting to kind yeah. of. Uh, peek into each other's inner lives. And we get that with Tyrion and, and Jon Snow, very much building on the conversation they had in Jon's first chapter outside the uh, feast to celebrate the king, when Tyrion shadow stood as tall as a king and he was advising Jon to armor himself and people's disdain for him. And now they kind of deepen that conversation as they start talking about not only, not only themselves, but their roles in society and how they can fit into backstory and what kind of world they want to create. There's the, the great conversation you alluded to, Jeff, uh, where John just kind of walks up while Tyrion is reading and asks, Why do you read so much? Uh, Tyrion looked up at the sound of the voice. Jon Snow was standing a few feet away, regarding him curiously. He closed the book on a finger and said, Look at me and tell me what you see. The boy looked at him suspiciously. Is this some kind of trick? I see you, Tyrion Lannister. Tyrion sighed. You are remarkably polite for a bastard, Snow. <laughs> what, you, what you see is a dwarf. You are, what, twelve? Fourteen, the boy said. So that's it. they're kind of warily circling each other and trying to figure each other out. Tyrion is just kind of this this novelty for John. John hasn't met anyone who thinks or talks like Tyrion does, and and, and regards his perspective as interesting. And uh, Tyrion sees John as kind of uh, you know uh, someone like him, uh, the, the bastards and the cripples and the broken things, as he will go on to say in a later, later chapter. Yes, uh, and is it, kind of trying to trying to educate him a little bit, but also. And this is a classic Tyrion thing, like, is finds his naivete really annoying and almost personally insulting. <laughs> That's something that will come up strongly when Tyrion meets uh, Penny in A Dance with Dragons. Uh, where in the mental state Tyrion is at that point, he, he doesn't even have the pretense of finding things he likes about the other person anymore. And it's just f- full-on scorn. But here you see something similar where he... 
he immediately takes on this teacherly kind of teacher tone towards John, where he sees, like, look at me and tell me what you see. And you see, the, you know, the, the kind of theme that will come up in Arya's chapters with Sirio of look with your eyes and see what's really going on in the situation. And, and uh, something John says he's good at in these early chapters that a bastard has to be good at. So Tyrion is almost answering John's question in a way. When John asks, why do you read so much? Tyrion says, well, look at me. Read me. This is what I'm trying to acquire. I'm trying to acquire the skills to understand and control the world because, and this is a great monologue, my mind is my weapon. And that's the way I have to hold my place in the world. And, and you have to be able to do that as well, John, if you intend to make it as a bastard. And I think uh, that's a, a, a great bond, but a very different kind of bond than between Robert and Ned, where they were measuring the gap between uh, their past and present relationship and... Tyrion and John are trying to forge this new relationship out of commonalities. You know, Robert and Ned had things in common and now kind of don't, whereas Tyrion and John are people meeting each other for the first time and trying to discover what they do have in common. Interesting. I think there's some uh, something that's kind of cool here as well is just this is setting up the importance of their friendship later, and this is sort of relates to what we learned from the TV show, but I think it was also widely predicted for the books, which is that if Tyrion's going to be on Team Danny, which that's the part that I think a lot of people predicted well before the show, yep. showed us that Tyrion will be the uh, kind of a connector between Danny's faction and Jon's faction, kind of like he does on the show. He helps hmm. connect them. And that, that friendship with Jon that he establishes way back here in this chapter, and of course in the succeeding Jon chapter as well, Tyrion is still at the wall, uh, that is going to come up big because they know each other already and that they already have a sense of each other's character and they like each other. Like you said, this is they're, they're not very much like each other here, but uh, they don't have much in common necessarily on the outside, but they start to realize they actually have quite a lot in common and they, you know, they end up liking each other quite a bit by uh, once by the time Tyrion leaves the wall and yeah. uh, that's going to matter. Like, that's, it's the same kind of concept that comes up a lot with the whole reason a lot of these young kids are sent to foster with some other family is to build that kind of goodwill that uh, these early life friendships that will go a long way towards preventing wars later. Um, you know, like Robert and Ned being friends early on, that's a pretty defining thing. Now, Tyrion and Jon are going to have that kind of relationship, obviously, but <laughs> but it's uh, it's 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 a, it's enough. It, it matters, you know. It's a small, shorter friendship. It's not they didn't live together for years, hanging out, but it's it's certainly the human moment comes up again when they're going to uh, when they're going to be strategizing. When it's all about big politics, there's these little character moments are going to matter a lot. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, you know, um, the other thing too about the thing that brings them together so much in this chapter is that they're, they're out, outcasts, they're outsiders in, in, in the world. I mean, Tyrion's a dwarf and, and John is a bastard and they do have a, that shared limitation, not necessarily the same limitation, but the same limitation that the upper crust of Westerosi nobility looks at them and sees them as different and bad, I guess, for lack of a better term. But yeah, that's that, that whole thing about them being, Outsiders and Outcasts just uh, works uh, to develop their relationship in their conversations in this chapter and as they progress also to the next John and Tyrion chapters. Absolutely. And they, you know, they're, they have an interesting role where they're outcasts being supported by the world uh, that mocks them. Whereas, you know, John and Tyrion have not been literally kicked to the curb. You know, as Tyrion said, right. if I'd been born a peasant, I would have been probably left out to die or sold to grotesquerie. But alas, I was born a Lannister of Casterly Rock. So Tyrion's always been in this very precarious position where 
he can walk into town and basically take over. Like, he can walk into an inn and everyone's bowing and scraping and getting him food and fetching him a prostitute. And, like, you know, he can... I mean, look at him in the Game of Thrones. He just goes to the wall because he can, because he's bored, because this is the life of, <laughs> a, of, Tyr- of Tywin Lannister's son. He has the gold. He has men. He can just do it. Yeah. But anybody... No one else do this. <laughs> just a Exactly, right. exactly. <laughs> exactly. He does it because no one's expecting him to. That's kind of Tyrion's perversity. But on the other hand... The the poorest uh, able-bodied man can mock him for being a dwarf, and like that's something that is, especially a lot of peasants take. I think at least a somewhat understandable pleasure in is mocking him because he's he has the wealth and the power, but they can have this over him. And Tyrion is very acutely aware of that. And the same thing as we'll see at the Wall is true of John, where John has dealt with uh, uh, you know scorn and contempt especially from Catelyn, even unspoken all of his life for being a bastard at Winterfell, is constantly being kept separate. He has that very sad flashback in the Storm of Swords to when he and Rob would play at being various characters from stories while, while sword fighting, and then one day John just ingests that I'm the Lord of Winterfell, as he would say, I'm Florian <laughs> the Fool, or I'm Eamon the Dragon Eamon the Dragon Knight, and Rob said, you can't ever be the Lord of, of Winterfell. You know, my mom says, you can't ever be the Lord of Winterfell, you're a bastard, and so John has that outsiderness, but as Donal Noy will tell him at the wall, uh, he also, you know, was given a, a sword by a master at arms. He also never had to worry about where his next meal was coming from. He never had to worry about where his right. clothes were coming from, but who would tend his fires, who would see to his room when he was out in the yard. He he, he has never had to work a day in his life. So yes. the, both John and Tyrion are kind of on that precipice where they they get to take part in this upper crust world, but they're constantly being shoved to the margins of it and having to watch from the corners. And that, as well as that, so that can breed that can be a good thing or a bad thing in terms of your moral development, right? On the one hand, that can develop empathy in you. You have Tyrion empathizing with Bran, developing in a special saddle, saying, I, "I care about cripples, bastards, and broken things. I feel like I am one myself." Uh, and I, and also, of course, because I think Tyrion feels some guilt out of knowing pretty much for sure that it was Jaime and Cersei who uh, tossed Bran yes. out the window. And you have so you have that, or you have John, uh, you know, raising up Satin to be his squire, feeling empathy with the wildlings, taking care of Sam. Like you know, that's the 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 ideal you hope for, where the, the 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 garbage you've had to take will make you a better person in dealing with people who are going through struggles themselves. On the other hand, though, it can breed resentment and anger and a desire to uh, destroy the people who uh, who did you wrong. And we see that with Littlefinger, and we see that in, in this chapter, too, as Tyrion is describing uh, when he would light fires in, in the bowels of Casterly Rock as a child. And as you said, Jeff, sometimes dream about Tywin burning, sometimes about his sister, and uh, it goes on to say, Jon Snow is staring at him, and this is this is important, a look with equal parts horror and fascination. Tyrion <laughs> guffawed. Don't look at me that way, bastard. I know your secret. You've dreamed the same kind of dreams. No, Jon Snow said, horrified. I wouldn't. No, never. Tyrion raised an eyebrow. Well, no doubt the Starks have been terribly good to you. I'm certain Lady <laughs> Stark treats you as if you were one of her own. And your brother Rob, he's always been kind, and why not? He gets Winterfell and you get the wall. And your father, he must have good reasons for packing you off to the Night's Watch. Like, there's, that's such a loaded passage because Tyrion is, you know, talking about his own life as well. About how he's been treated at Casterly Rock and the constant... Like, when he says, your brother's always been kind and why not? He's talking about Jaime, too. Like, Jaime was always kind to Tyrion and why not? Because Tyrion was never a threat to Jaime. You know, Jaime could, Jaime could yeah. afford to be kind to Tyrion. He gets the rock and Tyrion gets nothing is I'm sure what Tyrion has thought to himself before. So he's, he's seeing his own struggles in Jon and trying to say that, you know, look, you 
you can't pretend that you just came out of that process, that crucible, everyone hating you. You can't pretend you came out of that process pure and good and just with <laughs> the most noble of intentions. You have to have an anger in you, John, deep down. I know you have that anger in you because I have that anger in you. you have, and John reveals that he does. He gets angry and Ghost, who of course embodies John in a lot of ways, attacks Tyrion. And that's something that, that, uh, that John has to confront and deal with is, is his frustration that he feels and that led him to join the Night's Watch. And it's not just to be a hero, that he's trying to work through some real heavy stuff about what happened at Winterfell. And that is, again, like and unlike the last chapter where both Ned and Robert were dealing with their backstory and baggage too, but Ned and Robert have never been pushed to the margins of anything in their lives. They've been at the same... I guess you could say Ned compared to Brandon, but even then... You know, Ned and Robert have never dealt with social marginalization in any capacity and have never had to no. deal with the kind of either the kind of empathy or the kind of resentment that goes with that. That's a really great point, not just because it's uh, so true, but because the fact is that this is probably the way Tyrion is speaking to John is almost certainly the first time anyone's ever spoken to him anything remotely like that. And I don't just mean like how blunt he is, but just the fact that he's bringing up these concepts like he he read John more accurately probably than whatever book he was reading like <laughs> John's probably never seen that kind of perception before I mean someone like Maester Lewin's probably hit him with a few bits of wisdom that caught him off guard but not something like this not something like the dynamics of being a bastard um, I don't even think Maester Lewin would, would, would be able to grasp that because he's you know he understands being lesser than a noble, but he doesn't understand being just on the outside of a noble family like John is. Like the noble bastard is just its own thing. You know, like you said about Tyrion, uh, his his physical situation gives people a way to make fun of him while also being beneath him socially. And the bastard status is kind of the same thing, even though that's a lot more artificial, and it's a lot harder for us you know, real world people to, to fathom quite the same way. Cause bastards aren't treated this way in our world, but, but people with deformities are treated unfairly and, and, and mocked. Oh yeah. So this is something that it's important for George to point out this difference. Cause we get why Tyrion is treated the way he is. We understand that as humans who live in the real world, John's situation is a lot different. So explaining his particular brand of, Lack of privilege, but still having a lot of privileges, as uh, Donald Noy points out. You know, he still has vast amounts of privilege beyond just about everybody else, but definitely, notably less than, you know, the, the noble family that brought him up. So that's a it's good that George dove deep into that and explained it, because oh, I yeah. think it's, it's a lot harder. It's, it's, it's a lot more subtle. Um, we don't necessarily get it without having it explained to us because we don't we don't live it ourselves. Or oh, yeah. that's, an, that's an excellent point especially about Tyrion's perspective I mean this is something we've touched on before about the way Tyrion in the first book is kind of aligned with the modern reader in many ways in terms of his sensibilities and attitudes and I agree in terms of the stuff he has to deal with uh, you know the issue of how disabled people are treated and the rights they have and the kind of the social perception of them uh, especially uh dealing with uh, dwarves and little people and this, what they face, that's much more kind of relevant and urgent to an audience in the 90s than how bastardy is treated. I'm speci yeah, specifically yes. thinking of Martin writing this book in the context of a lot of, of a lot of political debates about 
disabilities and about uh, like you know public spaces and how they dealt with people with disabilities in the 90s and you had the Americans with Disabilities Act and a lot more political mm-hmm. visibility and a lot more stuff about representation kind of started I mean, across a lot of issues the 90s you know was kind of the era of a lot of the way social issues are talked about today kind of coming to the fore and Martin oh, yeah. was writing Martin was writing this book in that context and I kind of see a lot of that in Tyrion and how Tyrion thinks about the world and how Tyrion thinks about how you should deal with the world. And, uh, yeah, it's it's important that John is brought face-to-face with this. Again, I love that line, a look equal parts horror and fascination. Like, he's <laughs> terrified by what Tyrion is talking about, but he's fascinated because he, he does recognize it, as easy right. He, he, Tyrion read him completely that John has had these thoughts about Catelyn and even maybe even about his brother. I mean, John has that dream where he cacks off Rob's head and screams, I am the Lord of Winterfell at one point. Yes. So I think, so John, I mean, it's not even conscious for John because he genuinely does love Rob, of course, so it just horrifies him that he would ever have these thoughts. So he buries them way down deep. But uh, Tyrion, in large part because he's quite a bit older than John, uh, has been has been dealing with these thoughts at the surface. So he's much, he's able to articulate them, uh, as you said, as he's in a way that no one has ever articulated them to John before. He normalized and, um, it slightly. Even, John was like, I'm an evil person or something. And he's like, wait, well, one other person thinks this exactly, way at least. <laughs> exactly right. It's not just, that's a great point. It's not just that Tyrion's saying that John is angry, but that it's okay for you to be angry. It's normal for you to be angry. I have that anger. Other people like you probably have that anger. You're going to the wall to meet a lot of angry people for a lot of good reasons. <laughs> yeah, their no top loyalty the to family is massively important. So to him, to, for he must have really struggled with this idea. He's like, I'm not loyal to my family. I have these thoughts about Rob, you know, and yeah. Uh, and yeah, he, it's almost like he's worrying that Catelyn is right if he's having these thoughts, if he's ooh. having this anger Maybe Catelyn is right to be afraid of me, to think I'm a danger to her true-born children if I'm thinking this. And Tyrion is so far past, like, worrying that Tywin is right about him. Like, he's burned <laughs> through that particular level of shame. I mean, Ty- Tyrion is it's still very wounded by how Tywin treats him, of course, but it's not a surprise at this point. It's so baked into his everyday experiences that uh, for John, this is like, uh, it's like, He's just taken a wound, and it's raw flesh, and it's it's easily pricked, and it's easily rubbed. It's it's right there on the surface. For Tyrion, this is like this is calluses at this point. These are just <laughs> yeah. old wounds, and he he recognizes them in John, but he he doesn't have he doesn't have the delicacy that someone like Maester Lewin uh, or Ned or even Benjen might kind of dance around the subject a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but Tyrion is going right for the gut. You know, at the same time, though, too, the amount of abuse that Tyrion suffered was a lot more than than John I would say. I mean when you have Oh yeah. Yeah. Tywin having his having his guard rape Tysha and and do all those types of horrible things to him and constantly insult him. That's a little bit different than the neglect and silent treatment that Catelyn gave to John and and the and the boyhood and the boyhood taunts that Rob gave to John how he could never be the lord of Winterfell. There is there is a, a degree of of difference of of so much of it being so much worse to be Tyrion Lannister than to be Jon Snow, both in their their ability level and Tyrion's disability as being a dwarf, but also just in their their treatment as well. The the stuff that Tywin does to Tyrion is just utterly horrific, and and, and it does get a, an eventual revealing later on. So like when we're in this chapter here, what I find is is so interesting is you're like, oh my gosh, like this guy's burning a fire and and thinking that his father is burning in the fire. Like why would what would you ever think that about your father? And then it's only as they're 
as Bronn and Tyrion are journeying, journeying off of the uh, down from the Vale, that he tells them the story of, of Tysha and and what happened uh, there, and and you do get a, a a greater understanding for why Tyrion would be so angry. And I'm not saying that when he was a kid, he was necessarily was was aware of this, but I mean, he was what thirteen or fourteen when he married Tysha. Is that what it comes out about? I believe so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he so thinks of himself bit, as a similar age to Sansa. Yeah. Yeah, so he couldn't have been that much farther apart from, you know, lighting the fires of the bowels of Casterly Rock and thinking of his father burning in there. And then you also get, too, in A Storm of Swords, where uh, Oberyn Martell is talking with Tyrion and tells him about the story about how Cersei took Oberyn and Elia to Tyrion's room and, you know, twisted his penis and stuff like that and did all these sorts of really abusive things. So you can see why Tyrion might really want to burn uh, Cersei in a fire as well. Um, but it almost reads to me from this this vantage point that this is John's like first like consciously being like, oh, yeah, I've, I've, I've had that feeling before for sure. Um, just because he he. he he definitely has some anger, as as we see in the uh, the Catlin chapter of, uh, towards Cat, um, but it, it's not as as pronounced. It's it's much more subconscious, and it comes up in in you know like Emmett said in, in John's dream and his penultimate Dance with Dragons chapter, where he's you know chopping off John uh, Rob's head. Um, but yeah, it's 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 great, and it's it's one of those things that I really enjoy in George's writing is that when people say these really outlandish, horrific things. They do get a further revelation down the road, which kind of is like makes it understandable, if not defensible necessarily. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a great point that Tyrion has had it worse than John, And that's why Tyrion is able to be in the mentor position in this chapter. And that's why John is in the relative naive position that he is, is that while John has certainly taken hardships, he's not he's not aware of his bubble and Tyrion is. Tyrion is perfectly aware, as he says, that if he had not been born into one of the richest families in the country, then as a dwarf, he would have been screwed immediately. Yes. Uh, so Tyrion is aware of that and kind of has an interesting uh, relationship to it. He indulges in it freely, uh, but also uh, likes reaching below it and likes he likes poking holes in, you know, in feudalism, in the nobles' self-pretension, in his father's self-image. Whereas uh, John and this chapter is still trying to believe in a lot of those ideals and a lot of images and th- thinks of them as a, a shortcut around Catalan's implacable hatred for him. And, and Tyrion, you can see him cutting through that in their conversation about the Night's Watch, where John says it's a noble calling, and Tyrion points at <laughs> Yorin and the rapist and says, no, that's what it looks like. That's what you're heading towards. You're heading towards a, a penal colony. Uh, and this is, you know, this is not you going off to find a purer way than you could find in Winterfell. This is your father getting rid of you uh, because you, you're a bother to everyone at Winterfell. Um, and of course, this you know inspires violent anger in John that uh, Tyrion once again connects with and recognizes as, as part of his own. Although I do think it's interesting in a conversation about you know about reading and looking with your eyes and understanding the true nature of people that. They're pointing at Yorin as an example of everything that is is wrong and decaying about the Night's Watch. When, as we learn about Yorin in A Clash of Kings and Arya, he's he's as heroic as they come and genuinely yes. believes in the ideals of the Night's Watch yeah. and he sticks to them black. in the face. <laughs> exactly, he's 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 the the one true Night's Watchman uh, and the and the one true Lord, one true Knight, one true King kind of formulation that A Song of Ice and Fire <laughs> is so rife with. And Yorin holds that line on behalf of, of, of innocent children against the likes of Amory Lorch. So uh, coming back to this, we can sense that uh, much as on one, with one hand, Martin is kind of tearing down the image of the Night's Watch as they existed in Jon's brain, as in they're all men like Benjamin Stark. 
But on the other hand, he's not just kind of leaving all the pieces broken. He's rebuilding it into a different image. He's saying, okay, but what they, what some of them are is men like Yorin. Men who are, you know, grouchy and smelly and old and wouldn't make Sansa's heart flutter and, you know, has to deal with rapists all day long. But his heart is as true as they get. And that's, you know, that ties into what we were talking about with Jon and Tyrion as outcasts. It ties into uh, you know, Tyrion trying to see the best in people who are shoved to the margins. And it ties into to John trying as a bastard to have that bastard's wisdom of seeing the truth of things. And as John develops in the Night's Watch, that happens. He sees the worth in Sam Tarly. He sees the worth in Donal Noy. Uh, he uh, sees the worth in Satin as his squire and in the Wildlings as a whole. So, you know, a, a lot of the the themes John and Tyrion deal with are kind of present in this chapter. But they really only stand out on reread because the first time through, you don't know that about Yorin. You don't get a sense of the Night's Watch. You don't know where John is headed. Uh, but it's 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 gratifying to come back and see that Martin already had a sense of where he wanted these debates to go. If the things John and Tyrion are arguing about, you know, stick with them, especially John. These are the kind of things, you know, I love that closing image of Tyrion watching John look into the fire, thinking it over, because that's, that's, that's John growing up slowly, and John's yeah. starting to, to internalize these ideas. Uh, and one of the things I love about John's character is that the... They all come back. When you see his decisions in A Dance with Dragons, you can definitely trace them to the things he learned here. Yeah, and he, and he learns them very humanly, right? Because he doesn't just... It doesn't just snap on, right? Like, he, Tyrion tells yeah. him to, to not let people harm him. Like, don't be... Don't have thin skin about the word bastard or people are just going to keep calling you that. And he, it makes sense to him intellectually, but it takes him a while to, to, for that to sink in because obviously Alistair Thorne gets under his skin a bunch of times. But eventually... But by like Dance of Dragons, someone calls him bastard, and he's just he's just like, "Yep, I'm a bastard," <laughs> <laughs> which is realistic because like that is kind of how it goes. Oftentimes, you you hear a good idea, and unless it's like directions that you can follow, that's not, that's different. But if it's like some some new way to like change your attitude, that doesn't always just happen right you know right right away. And and as you pointed out with him looking into the fire, I think that's really cool because it's almost like, well, hey, I need to look in the fire again. With this new perspective, <laughs> you know, yes. it's like I used to stare at the fire and think about it this way, but Tyrion just told me this new way. I need to go right now and look in the fire and think about things differently. So I think that's pretty cool. He's like he's very serious and and, and uh, taking it to heart like right away, even though it's. I think that's true. There's sometimes you learn things without realizing you've learned them. Like what's that moment where John thinks back to a Tyrion quote and can't, doesn't remember that it was Tyrion who said it to him. What's oh. the line he's remembering? You know what I'm talking about, I, right? I, I remember the context was something like, John remembered someone who had said this to him one time, but he couldn't remember who or something like that. And it's kind of a sad line, too, because it's... Yeah, it's, is, it's, it's something, I, is, is, is it the most men will deny hard truths line? It's some, yes, yes. some quippy line that Tyrion said. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, John remembers it without remembering it was Tyrion. And I just love that. It shows that Tyrion was an effective mentor, that even without remembering Tyrion himself, John internalized the lesson. And that's something, of course... As with any classic uh, genre protagonist that we're going to be seeing a lot of with uh, John, uh, is the endless endless chain of mentors that he gets throughout <laughs> the coming books. Every every everywhere he goes, he gets a new father figure. It's true. Uh, and it gets more and more complex. Like he's dealing the stuff he's dealing with Tyrion is. It's not basic, but it's it's very like fundamental. Who are you? How do you relate to the world? How do you get through conversations with people? Where are you going? What's this institution going to be? And when you get to later father figures, uh, the questions get more complex with Stannis and with Mance. Uh, that's when you get to really heady stuff about John's identity and who he wants to be and what kind of leader he wants to be like. 
uh, early on, it's, it's stuff with Tyrion. It's it's very emotional, very visceral, uh, very like the scales are falling from my eyes stuff. But this, yeah, this lays the groundwork. He wouldn't be the the Lord Commander he was without this. I want to make a just a quick comment, backing up to what you said about the the effect of the '90s and um, how, what the times George was writing in about you know Americans with disabilities. That is a really interesting point. But also, I wonder at that um, why there isn't more. Um, rap rock in uh, a Game of Thrones <laughs> which is also genre music well it, it also uh, inspires equal parts horror and fascination <laughs> excellent point you should have the, the more like, one of the bloody mummers should just basically be Jonathan Davis from Korn like, he, he, would, he, would, he would fit in just fine like the, just the endless braid and they would have like they'd have like a Mad Max guitar guy going oh uh, yeah totally um <laughs> Yeah, that's that is not, not, generally speaking. I think these early books have aged very well in terms of how they were written. I think there yeah. are obviously some perspectives on like representational issues that they haven't aged well, which I think is just you know natural that a, a book that's getting on several decades old starts to be a little dated in some respects. Uh, but yeah, there are little areas. Uh, Jamie's Jamie in the first couple books is very very '90s comic kind of uh, gambit <laughs> antihero kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, overall, uh, I'm glad that uh, you can't you can't necessarily tell when these first couple books were written. I think a Game of Thrones. That's I think true. this could have this could have been written in the early '80s with a couple tweaks. This could have been written a couple years ago. Uh, yeah. I think I think it's 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 confident enough and well versed in its own world that it really ages well, and that you know a lot of genre fiction doesn't age well and isn't necessarily supposed to age well it's supposed to reflect what what you what was the style at the time to quote uh, grandpa from the simpsons uh, uh, i will give you 5 uh, bees uh, for a for a quarter exactly 5 <laughs> bees for a nickel we'd say um, and it, it it ages well in large part because you know character dynamic stuff like this is really timeless and you know kind of unexpectedly seeing yourself in another person is, is something you can a story you can always tell as I'm rereading Dying of the Light right now, I I, I forgot when it was written, and I was re- I read the, after my first session. I read the first four chapters, and it's the same feeling. I can't tell when it was written. It seems like George could have written it during a Game of Thrones, and it would feel really similarly. And I went and looked, and yeah. it's 1977. Yes, and I'm like, wow. This I mean, it predates the Ice Dragon even. It's a really it's a pretty darn old book, and. Uh, but yeah, the writing st- the style is the same. Some of the same phrases, like he uses wood that I were young. You know, that phrase comes up and, you know, I'm like, ah! <laughs> sure. So. Yeah, I kind of get the sense he synthesized a lot of his influences uh, in terms of fiction written between the end of World War II and early 70s. Uh, and like, he's, he's certainly, of course, kept reading since then and kept fresh, but I get the sense his strongest influences in terms of his language and tone were all from right there. And since then, he's just been kind of—he's been drawn from those wells pretty repeatedly, which you know is how how most authors tend to work. So yeah, he's, right, he's especially you know. good, I think, at, at not dating himself. Yeah, and, and the good thing too about George—if um, you go back to some of his uh, not a blog entries—he does once in a while he'll come and talk about the things that he's reading. So he does keep current with what's going on in fiction and also what's going on with uh, with real world events as well. So he, he tends to have a very wide. Um, uh, Repertoire of, of books that that he he's reading. I, I know that he's uh, it's probably been about two years now since he's done 
he's done a post like that, but they're always a really good guidepost about things that maybe you should be reading. So if you're looking for, for, for books to read in, in between uh, the, the, the Song of Ice and Fire novels, which we might have a few years, you know, between each mm-hmm. novelist as it's turned out, going to George's Nada blog and looking at some of the stuff that he was reading in the past is a great, great way to do that. That's how I discovered Daniel Abraham from those posts. Oh, really? Yeah, who is, of course, as you know, one of the co-writers of The Expanse. Of course, they, they yes. go by a pseudonym. For anyone who doesn't know, the author of The Expanse is James S.A. Corey, but that's a pen name. It's two people, Ty Frank and Daniel Abraham. So, yeah, I, I, I totally second that recommendation because George, uh, during, it, was, it was a while ago. You know, he's, you're right. That blog's been around for a while, and, and he's, been, he's made a lot of good recommendations. I bet if we looked back on older recommendations, there'd be some really some gems like, oh, he, George recommended this 20 years ago. Man, yeah. <laughs> I bet there'd be some of that going on. Absolutely. So um, this chapter is uh, it's a really good chapter. I mean, it's, as you can tell from our, our conversation, it's, it's really it, there's so much depth in there. There's so much going on. Uh, which, and it's and it's great too because there's 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 things that's that we can enjoy as a first time reader, but even going back in it, I mean, Aziz, I'm sure you've read the books 20 times now, um, something and like probably that, probably about yeah, 15 times, and this is probably <laughs> my sixth or seventh time through the books altogether um, through. So there's a lot of great stuff to kind of go back and, and, and grab there as well. But would you guys, um, I don't know, would you guys like more generally or, or dislike more generally in, in in this chapter? I mean, there's. I'll be honest, there wasn't a lot that I really disliked in this chapter at, at all. There's a lot of stuff I really loved a lot in this chapter. But uh, but I'll toss it over to you guys. What did you guys like more generally in this chapter? Or dislike? Well, from the title of our episode, you can tell the most iconic part of this chapter is definitely Tyrion's monologue uh, on my mind as my weapon. When John asks him why he reads, and Tyrion lays out his explanation that it's you know not just for the sheer uh, pleasure of, of paging through a story, but that this is his social role, this is how he interacts with the world, that by keeping himself smart, he secures his role within House Lannister, and that's his 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 position, that's his identity, that's who he is. Uh, and he, he lays this out as kind of a, an example for John in terms of you can't, you don't have Winterfell waiting for you as an, as an inheritance prize, you don't have a marriage your father's going to make for you, you have to make your own identity, you have to make your own self. Uh, and it's it again establishes Tyrion as uh, someone we might be supposed to relate to as as, as people who are uh, who are ourselves invested enough in reading to be reading the book at that moment. So Martin can be sure we <laughs> like we like books enough to relate to Tyrion that way. And it's it's just something I like about Tyrion in general is you can get the sense from his thoughts about the just the way his mind has been shaped over time and how all the nonsense he's put up with and all the anger he's swallowed has kind of built on him. There's that great line about, you know, when, when John six ghosts on him and won't let him up, that Tyrion has this anger, then he crushes it out. He says, you know, it's the, not the last time, not the first time he'd be humiliated and not the last time either. And there's something so sad about that. Uh, that he's just kind of his his mind his his mindset and his impression of himself has been so shaped over time, and you get that you get that sense with Tyrion. Like you said, Jeff, we don't really get into the full extent of Tyrion's backstory for a while yet. We don't get into the Taisha stuff, his relationship with his father, until much later in this book. But that hits home so hard because it fits with what we already know of Tyrion and how Tyrion thinks about himself and thinks about the world. Like when we read that conversation with Bronn about Taisha, you know, we go, ah, okay, that's why he's <laughs> like this. Yeah. That's why he thinks about the world this way. That It doesn't come, it's not shocking. It doesn't feel out of character. It feels like the answer to the question that this chapter sets up, which is, oh, why does Tyrion 
why is he this combination of smart and sarcastic? Why is he really yes. interested in people, but also act like he the walls have to be up and he can't make himself vulnerable? And that, I like that the way that his his mind is my weapon monologue uh, sets himself up for that. And I also I also really like the dragon skull flashback, which we'll get into in a little bit. But the just the language of uh, him finding the skulls uh, shut away by Robert. And he says that he'd expect him to find them impressive, perhaps even frightening. He had not thought to find them beautiful. Yet they were, <laughs> as black as onyx, polished smooth, so the bones seemed to shimmer in the light of his torch. They liked the fire, he sensed. And I, I like that for a number of reasons. It's good, it's solid evidence for, for Tyrion Targaryen, if you're in that camp, for sure. That kind of emotional, <laughs> aesthetic connection to the dragons is very much a, a, a signature thing with the Targaryens, including Danny. Um... It, it gets into the kind of the duality of the dragons and the Targaryens in general, that uh, they're terrifying but also beautiful, and uh, they cause great destruction but can also bring about great things. And and the you know the one and then the other is changeable as flame, as the line goes, and that that links back to our previous chapter with Edward too about Ned and Robert arguing about the Targaryens and about Eris and about the kind of the legacy of that family and we see that kind of reflected here in a kind of more intimate way where uh, uh, Tyrion is struggling with the same issue, the, the, the legacy of the Targaryens. They were impressive, they were frightening, but they were also beautiful. And Robert shoved the skulls away, but he couldn't bear to destroy them. And, uh, you know, <laughs> there's that, there's that, that yeah, that, that classic, it, it all comes back to that great line about when the Targaryen is born, the, the gods flip a coin <laughs> and see if it lands on greatness or madness, and the dragons are the same way. Um, so I, I, like, I like that. Again, like you were saying, Jeff, it's, 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 it's just uh, a chapter that's not huge on plot, but it is, is very layered, and yeah, it might be short, sure. but there's a lot packed into it with those monologues, so I love all that stuff. Yeah, I, I think those are all really great uh, points, and those are uh, well-spoken, as always, you know. <laughs> Constant agreement is what this podcast is all about. Uh, <laughs> I don't agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about you, Uzis? What did you like about this chapter? Yeah, I, I definitely would echo several things Emmett said. And I'd also want to point out that part of what makes this chapter excellent is something that you referred to earlier, which is how well it stands the test of time. Not just from a real world perspective, although that certainly counts, but, but within the series. I mean that this chapter is way better because of what has come after it. You know, when rereading yes. it, it's like, wow, this chapter has way, is, is really awesome, more awesome than it was because of the, the, all the, you know, all the rest of book one and the other four books and the world of ice and fire have just made it matter more. And these early chapters are really, they're more efficient towards the original plot ideas, which isn't necessarily meaning they're better, but it is, George, this is we're still in George thought this was going to be a trilogy territory at the point of this right. chapter. So the fact that he's trying to get a lot accomplished, and I think that the, the, the he's doing that in the scene in a couple of ways, which is the whole the dichotomy of the ice and fire, the north. You're seeing the north. Tyrion is kind of intimidated by the vast emptiness of it. Meanwhile, they've got this just uh, juxtaposition of all this dragon and fire stuff that he's thinking about hmm. with all that history. And so that's just ice and fire in a nutshell. You got both of those things there. But you also have the, this is maybe the first moment with the exception of Tyrion and Jon's first interaction back at Winterfell where some of the same stuff comes up. But we get into it a little more here where he, you really, it's a fist pump moment for people who uh, were, and in, this is also a very relevant to the 90s because of 
the nineties were kind of when the tide started to shift. Maybe it was more in the early two thousands, but the nineties in the beginning of when fantasy was, you know, when I was in high school, which is in the eighties and nineties, this stuff would have been, was really uncool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is like, if you play D and D that's really nerdy and you're a little bit of a pariah just for doing that. I'm pretty sure high school kids who play D and D now don't face that. And, and I, I'm, I'm certain they don't face problems for liking fantasy stuff, like liking Harry no. Potter or liking game of Thrones or liking any of that stuff. Now it's pretty cool. It's pretty mainstream. So with his, my mind is my weapon line. Man, that probably hit some people pretty hard as like, hell yeah, man, thank you for that line, you know? This is yeah. what makes us, like, in a world where, in the 80s, where it was all about, you know, jock culture and nerd culture was like, that was the thing that was being made fun of, like, the jocks beating up on the nerds. We had movies like Revenge of the Nerds and all. It was, like, it was a, such a huge 80s, 90s trope. So this is like turning that around and saying, hey, look, this is cool. Being smart is cool. Being smart is valuable. Being smart is useful, you know? And so, I don't know, I think that probably, I didn't realize it at the time, you know? I didn't even realize it before we recorded this episode, but when you pointed that stuff out about taking into account what George was in his mind, uh, thinking in the, during the 90s, that just struck me. It was like, hey, you know, that this line is cool now, but thinking about it in the context of the 90s, it's even cooler. So... Oh yeah, that jumps out at me. Um, I definitely want to talk about the the dragon egg, the, the dragon skulls too, but we'll we'll come back to that. <laughs> like you said, <laughs> sure. That's that's a great point, though. I mean, so much of a lot of modern pop culture is, you know, '80s kitsch and uh, kind of reviving '70s and '80s genre franchises with much larger budgets and much huger audiences, including internationally. And it's very interesting that Game of Thrones, uh, the show, and the potential spinoffs are kind of part of that. When A Song of Ice and Fire, as you say, Aziz, was originally written in a much more different media environment in terms of not only technology, of course, but the genre. And uh, how uh, you can have this perspective in this first book of kind of a more scrappy underdog kind of attitude towards these things that uh, today is, is less relevant. I mean, yeah, you have, I remember one of the classic examples of that, like you have... Uh, stuff like Stranger Things where the kids have posters from the Evil Dead and the thing. And I'm like, no kids in the 80s had those posters. That's what modern, like, college hipsters have Evil Dead posters. That's that's a cool signifier now. Yeah, Evil that's Dead was... Kids had posters later. then. Yeah, no, they had... It was Star Wars posters and Ghostbusters posters, and that's pretty much it. But it's interesting how over time... You know, what was considered underground, unknown, or nerdy, or weird, just kind of becomes embraces mainstream and then kitsch. And I think yeah. it's interesting you can kind of see that process through the lens of this story simply because it's been written and discussed for so long that we've evolved along the way. Cool. Oh, yeah, absolutely, for sure. And, you know, this is, I mean, if you think about it, like, this is, what, five years before Fellowship of the Ring comes out? I feel, I feel like that's probably the turning point, at least in the, um, to capture the culture zeitgeist, where, where fantasy becomes cool to like, because I remember, I think I was a junior or senior in high school, I don't remember when, I watched Fellowship of the Ring, and I was watching with a bunch of people that I played on the freaking baseball team with, you know, back in the day <laughs> in, in high school. So, I mean, like, the kind of... It, crossed over from like the nerd and jock cultures sort of merged as one, at least for that time. And I mean, nowadays, I mean, look, my, my, my family is, is not, my brothers, I would say are, are not particularly nerdy types, but we all have, have watched game of Thrones. My two, my brother, my one brother and I have both read a song of ice and fire and, and my other brother who's probably like the least 
nerdy guys as as you can always as you can imagine uh, is now interested in doing the audiobooks because he, tr- he travels a lot for his his work so he's going to try and start a song of ice and fire at some point here soon nice. so <laughs> yeah it's it's it, it's it's cool right i mean it's cool that, that that george plays a role in transforming culture into being something better than than what it was yeah, i agree but with the yeah, the first couple of years of the of the aughts the oos was definitely the turning point lord of the rings harry potter yeah uh, i think the phenomenal success of the x-men and spider-man movies definitely played a large role yeah, in that, that, help, that, kind yeah. of, yep. that kind of secured the funding and critical kind of impetus for the crystal and batman movies and the mc movies that followed uh and i think it was also part of an era in which a lot of the kind of valorized 70s, 80s pop culture images were being reevaluated. Uh, you know, stuff like the Westerns and cop dramas were being seen through a different light and very yes. often very critically. Uh, and were, were being seen as products that were kind of an outmoded time and we needed new pop kind of uh, pop culture images to, uh, to, to, to dissect. Uh, and I think, you know, Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings movies and Harry Potter books and movies, uh, and the kind of wave of comic book movies came along at the exact right moment and I think uh, yeah I think it's interesting to consider n- not just all of A Song of Ice and Fire but a character like Tyrion Lannister specifically in that context that hmm. uh, he can be you know he, not just that he's a popular character but he provides one liners you know and in a different era yes there's a there's a, a, a sexually polymorphously perverse dwarf character provide the catchy one-liners probably not in a, in, a, in a pop culture era of generations past i mean I'm, I'm not a huge fan of i drink and i know things as a line <laughs> but i think it's just interesting in pop culture history that we've developed to that point so oh yeah uh, and think so, about yeah, how and, and peter dinklage yeah. thought oh he was going to be like he when he first heard of this role he was like nah fantasy dwarf hell no you know, because he right, thought right. he was going to be something like what you're describing, because that was the norm for this that genre. That's what people expected from it. And he's like, then they started explaining it to him, or he read the script. He's like, oh, this is very different. And <laughs> yeah, so just the fact that he expected it to be like that is total evidence of what you're saying here. Yeah, yeah, and that's a great point because I know he Dinklage also had a I forget what movie it was in or if it was an interview, but he had the great point about how. Whenever storytellers want to make a dream see really seem really weird, they just put a dwarf in it. Like the classic <laughs> Twin Peaks thing. We need this dream secret to seem strange. Just even though that doesn't happen in real life, just have a dwarf there. That'll make it weird. <laughs> and Martin, Martin, Martin did succumb to that in The Forsaken, which I love dearly. But there are dream secrets in The Forsaken in which uh, you have dwarves fighting and wrestling each other, and maybe they represent Tyrion and Penny. Maybe they're symbolic of something. But it is very much that trope of weird, trippy dream sequence. Let's put dwarves in it. Are there in the so, house I mean, of the too? Mar- aren't they? Yes, they are. Yeah, that's know. a very good yeah. point. Well, so damn. much as you know, Martin I never does even realize his, that. Wow. <laughs> much as Martin extends his empathy to Tyrion and as clearly wants us to identify with the not all of his character, but the struggles he goes through uh, facing prejudice. You know, he's certainly not immune to uh, falling back on those trips themselves. It's all a process, and ain't nothing perfect. But it is fun to to come back to this book with kind of the inherited wisdom of the years since the mm-hmm. development of the show, the change of pop culture. You know, you can't. I know people who want to like try to separate that stuff from the art itself, but I don't think you can do that mentally, and I don't I don't really see why you'd want to. I think that's part of what what makes it really interesting to reread this stuff. Yeah, for sure. And I don't I don't mean to like break up this this great conversation about the meta stuff, but I, I I'll briefly talk about my likes uh, so we can get back into the good stuff. Um, 
uh, for this chapter. I, I, I do love that half of this chapter occurs in Tyrion's head as he thinks through dragons, the histories, and Aegon's conquest. It, it, what I like about this is that it's showing that Tyrion is intelligent and that he's a thinker and that he considers things deeply rather than just being like, oh, well, Tyrion is smart. Like, it, that doesn't come through on the page. There's not a line where Tyrion is a smart guy. It's shown that Tyrion is a smart guy by being well-versed in history of knowing how to read people like John and also of knowing how to read people like Benjen too, as well. Um, I also really love that whole dynamic about Tyrion calling John to evaluate the Night's Watch more objectively than John's kind of delusional way of looking at it. Um, but that's already been covered in depth by, by you guys, so I won't expound <laughs> about that too much. So my only really like dislike in this chapter is actually more of a nod to uh, David and Dan and uh, the folks who write Game of Thrones. And so they added a really cool scene uh, here between Ned and John, uh, which does take place chronologically during this chapter because they do talk about how it was three days outside of Winterfell that they they they, they diverged. And uh, I love that scene where Ned tells John, "We'll talk about your mother." You know, I promise. And again, it's not a dislike from the, about this chapter, but I do love that invention by the showrunners, and I would have loved to see it on page. It feels very kind of George, if, if that makes sense. And it's, it's probably my favorite scene in all, all of Game of Thrones. I agree. It's a beautiful moment, and it does the lack of it does get into my dislike about this chapter, which is kind of a lost opportunity regarding the Stark brother that is sticking with John, namely Benjen. Uh, obviously, Benjen Stark goes missing uh, shortly after John's arrival at the Wall. In John's next chapter, he... Uh, remembers a conversa- couple conversations with Benjen before Benjen set out, but Benjen is already gone by that by the present day of that chapter. And then that's it for Benjen Stark. We hear about him, we pick up what might be his trail in the Clash of Kings, but we have not seen him yet to date in the series. And while, of course, I think he's been up to interesting things, and I'm very much looking forward to his return, I think the emotional impact of his disappearance is somewhat limited by how little we actually engage with him early on in this book. Uh, yeah. So not only do we not get an emotional conversation with Ned, but we don't really get an emotional conversation with Benjen. I know this is a Tyrion chapter, but they could have had a fight that revealed something interesting about Benjen's character beyond simply the one about his riding cloak. Uh, Benjen could, I mean, Tyrion could have overheard John and Benjen talking about the Watch. Maybe that could instigate their argument over the nature of the Night's Watch. Just something uh, to ground us in Benjen a little more so that we're... Uh, worried about him. I'm not really worried about Benjamin in, in like the sense that I should be about like a, a character who's missing. I'm curious to see what his return will be like, but I don't feel <laughs> emotionally like gripped. Uh, like when you know, when I read A Feast for Crows for the first time and Cersei got the report that Davos was dead, I was I was pretty sure that it was fake that Martin <laughs> wasn't going to be killing Davos off screens and, and kind of just bluntly revealing it in such a cavalier fashion. Yeah. But it did make me worry about Davos and make me eager to read his chapters and find out what happened. Ooh. With Benjen, I'm, I'm curious. I'm not worried. And I think that's because <laughs> we didn't really spend much time with him early on. So, again, like yours, it's not really a fault in the chapter. There's nothing in the chapter that's bad, I think. It's a very brief and to-the-point effective chapter, as we've been saying. But, uh... Yeah, given given how important the series keeps reminding us Benjamin Stark is, he's not exactly given a lot of build up. I feel like he, he feels like a structural character to me. Like Martin came up with his the point of Benjamin first, and didn't really have the kind of emotional pull that you see with Ned or even Lyanna via backstory. That could be part of this whole early development stuff, you know, because he he ended up fleshing out some of some of these characters so much more 
after he expanded the story, but Benjen's fate was kind of already dealt with by then. Hmm. Like, Benjen's already disappeared by then. I totally agree with you in That's general, too, because this is, yeah, like, I guess Benjen is almost like, we like him because he's a Stark. You know, he's right, got a cool it, job. Yeah, exactly. He's got a cool, like, he's a first ranger. Ooh, that's cool. But yeah, you're right. There's, we don't know much about him other than that he is is cool to John. Like, he's friendly to John. Even when John gets mad, he says some kind of wise things to John, you know. And that's nice. But that's not really, that doesn't say much about him other than that he knows how to talk to an angry teenager without... You know, <laughs> his tre- right. talking to like an adult should talk to an angry teenager. It, it's it's not terribly telling. So yeah, I think that's a that's a very fair criticism. It could be developed more if we get into R plus L equals J. He may have play, played a role, as many people have speculated, in setting that up, covering it up. He may have joined the Watch uh, out of guilt or obligation about it later. As we get into that stuff via Bran and John, I think that could lend some gravitas to Benjamin. He'll, he'll, if that happens, he'll be an interesting character in the Winds of Winter and a Dream of Spring. I don't think, uh, I don't think he's a particular. I think he's, he's, I think he's the least interesting Stark from what we're given. True, I agree. One other small thing that I, it's it's only because you have this category of dislikes that I would even mention it. But there's a couple of <laughs> sure. strange thing. There's a couple of like phrases and uses of terms very early. Also, these same very early chapters. It only happens here that don't quite fit. Uh, later. For example, we're about to talk about the Field of Fire and the Dragon Skulls. One thing he remembers is uh, Tyrion remembers Aegon using the phrase Aegon Dragonlord. That's the name he gives him. Aegon Dragonlord. (laughs) That phrase never comes up. No one ever calls him that again. And it's really, yeah, it's pretty much just always either Aegon or Aegon the Dragon or Aegon the Conqueror. So it's the one time that phrase comes up. And I thought (laughs) it it, kind of weird. It's like Aegon Dragon. That's a weird name. Um, and uh, also the phrase, the Lannisters take what was offered. That doesn't seem right to me. It seems like they're so rich and powerful. It doesn't seem like, it seems like they'd be more discriminating and they wouldn't, I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't seem to fit. No, they yeah. seem more snooty. You know, Tyrion isn't, but it just, it didn't quite fit for me. But again, that's such a, it's nitpickiest of nitpicks. No, I agree, though. Like, yeah, take what they're given seems like that should be the phrase or the Kettle Blacks or it should be the Nouveau Riche families that have that attitude. Yes. Yeah. Like, in terms of tone, the Lannisters should be the ones who are so rich they can refuse you because they don't have to take anything because they're the Lannisters. Um, mm-hmm. it, it kind of fits Tyrion, but, yeah, it doesn't really fit the, the Lannisters as a whole. Uh, and I agree about the, yeah, the Egg and Dragon Lord thing. That is a classic kind of thing of the stuff I've said I don't liked in fantasy before where it's just just names being thrown at you without a sense of organization or purpose and it's just yeah. like I'm supposed to care because that word is capitalized yeah dragon lord like, whoa dragon lord dragon, whoa. that must be important <laughs> it has the word dragon in it and that's a lot that's what I don't like about a lot of fantasy is where it just assumes that you like the stuff of it so much that you don't need it to be dramatic yeah, or make sense is... and something I like about Martin is yeah he's good Egan is whenever it's Egan he's the conqueror and you think Egan and your brain just fills it in the conqueror automatically right. it's just there <laughs> Because he's you know, hit at home, and like a weak, weaker fantasy is the stuff that where the author feels the need to come up with a new title for the character every time he's mentioned. Now he's going to be Egg and Dragon Lord. It's like no, that's, that makes that's that's less effective writing, not more effective. So I agree. Uh, Why does this are, guy who lived three hundred years later have twelve nicknames for this guy? Exactly. I mean, so much of so much of the series at its best makes fun of that. Like it makes fun of the lists of titles people have, uh, and and the importance they place upon them. So. 
I agree. That's a little. That's a little bit of uh, early installment weirdness uh, in terms of uh, Martin not quite figuring out his relationship uh, to the to the genre. Um, yeah. But uh, moving into the kind of the more uh, foreshadowing and groundwork area of this chapter, uh, we were talking about Benjamin a bit, and there is a there is a line you pointed out, Aziz, that uh, kind of resonates nicely given what happens to Benjamin later in this book. Yeah, Benjamin Stark emerged from the shelter he shared with his nephew. There you are, John. Damn it, don't go off like that by yourself. I thought the others had gotten you. Nah. <laughs> uh, darn it, Benjamin. <laughs> no, you. <laughs> Exactly, one of those classic dramatic irony moments where a character says what's going to happen to them. Uh, <laughs> doesn't even realize it. Um, but was he gotten by the others? Well, I guess I, we don't I know guess, exactly. But. I guess we don't actually know, but yeah, I, I totally get what you're coming from. It's, it's a funny line. Yeah. I mean, the two guys... Even Jay if it from, wasn't, yeah. Yeah, the, the other two guys that are with him are taken by the others, exactly. but Benjen is still missing, disappeared, hasn't yeah. shown up. Maybe they he just does show back up and not him, not literally, sure. they just... You know, attacked him. They have the reason right. he's not back home. He, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Even if it, even they didn't get him, he you know he's saying John don't wander off into the woods. But it is very much Benjen who will. The next by the time we get to the wall, Benjen has wandered off into the woods. <laughs> uh, he's, he's he's done exactly that um, and has 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 yet to return. Uh, elsewhere on a uh, on foreshadowing patrol, we've kind of touched on this in bits and pieces. But uh, Tyrion's relationship to dragons and dragon fire and dragon skulls is a repeated motif in this chapter. Uh, yeah. And uh, can, whether or not you believe in Tyrion Targaryen, it definitely points to a strong relationship between Tyrion and dragons, Tyrion and House Targaryen, maybe in the form of Danny. Uh, in particular, the line I uh, brought up earlier, he had not thought to find them beautiful in his relationship to dragon skulls, definitely indicates that Tyrion is going to be relating to dragons and House Targaryen in a way beyond simply them being monsters or even sources of power like you know he there's a there's a romantic allure to Tyrion about dragons there's there's something uh you know that's that makes his heart beat faster there's that line from the show about Jorah Mormont saying he was almost like religiously converted by the sound of dragons singing and that's kind of what Tyrion is saying here that the hmm. that dragons that they he was he was expecting just to find them cool <laughs> they, they, they stirred something and they, they, they moved something inside him. He says, when I was your age, I used to dream of having a dragon of my own. So that seems that seems like very kind of heavily laid on foreshadowing that Tyrion is at the very least going to have a strong relationship with dragons and House Targaryen. May end up being a dragon rider, may be a member of House Targaryen himself. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I... You know, Aziza mentioned how originally this was conceived as a trilogy, and you do get the sense here that George is like rapidly trying to set groundwork for Tyrion being the the keeper of the dragon lore, so to speak, in in the role towards Daenerys Targaryen, who of course births dragons at the end of a Game of Thrones. And here it also reads as well that you know George is also laying groundwork for Tyrion being a dragon rider. So he's both got the lore side, which he thinks about extensively in this chapter. And he's also got the uh, the foreshadowing as well of of him being a dragon rider, which is also cool. You know, I, I was just like kind of like it kind of scratches my having read a Game of Thrones and having read all the all the the rest of the books in the series. It, I do. It still is a little bit mind boggling at this stage that George is like, I think I could do this in a trilogy. Yeah. No <laughs> like how? true. I mean, given I agree, given that uh, a Game of Thrones sets up like Stannis is going to be a big deal, even though he's not in the pitch letter. Theon is there, even though the Greyjoys aren't in the pitch letter. Like, obviously, obviously, he's realized by the time he gets to a Clash of Kings that that's not going to be the case. Yes. But yeah, I agree. There's a 
he definitely his eyes were were bigger than his stomach on this one when it came to trying to get this done in three books because well that's saying something. yeah as quick as 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 quickly as he's moving here like the war has just started by the time you get to the end of the first book so yes I agree he was he was I'm I'm glad I'm glad he quickly realized that this was going to be a bigger story than that <laughs> you know you know if you even like I think that George has said that his planned ending for the first book was the red wedding yeah like, can you imagine covering the amount of pl- groundwork in the plot in one hey, book can you imagine can you imagine caring enough about rob at that point for the red wedding <laughs> right. to mean anything like, if there had been no you know, rickon whole... and no aria and yeah. no sansa <laughs> then maybe there'd be enough time for rob but <laughs> i guess so yeah that'd be, like, that'd be like saying so at the end of the first star wars movie han solo was dead darth vader was luke's father and the emperor has been defeated we're gonna get that done in 90 minutes <laughs> it's gonna be very satisfying like yeah it was it was clearly bigger that's uh, your like wait which echoes. one was the emperor again exactly exactly, <laughs> exactly it would be it would be a mess but to go hand in hand with the uh symbolism and hints about Tyrion's relationship to house targaryen and dragons we have of course the more universally accepted secret targaryen heritage of the other person in this conversation john Snow, <laughs> uh, canonically the son of rhaegar and lyanna uh, and of course, uh, one of the the many hints to that that is uh, all across these early chapters. I don't even know if it qualifies as a hint so much as a beautifully ironic line. Once you know the theory, this early it is but, not a hint. I don't think. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I think it's a li- it's a little too buried. It's it's yeah. it's it's more you're supposed to come back and go aha when uh when when Tyrion is looking at John and thinking how much he looks like Ned and saying whoever his mother had been she had left a little of herself in her son. That's yeah. just great. That's just yes. a great, that's designed, you can tell that Martin wants you to reread this, because that's designed for you to realize, after figuring out Arkless Illiquus J, that, no, in fact, she left a huge amount of herself in her son. He looks like <laughs> his, his mom. He looks like, I mean, to the extent that he has the stark look, that's not Ned, that's Liana, that's his mother. Yep. Uh, but uh, but no one can see kind of the, the secret hiding in plain sight. And how ironic it is that Tyrion says, look at me and tell me what you see. <laughs> he, he, he's fooled and, and can't quite see through the secret of John's heritage yet. That's great. I love Martin. Because, yeah, build, building in those, those little ironies is what makes it fun to come back and, and see all the R plus L equals J hints across the first, like, you know, 12, 15, 20 chapters of this book. Yes. And George uh, threw a, an extra layer of of uh, misdirection in there by giving Rhaegar, John's real father, a solemn face also. So that <laughs> just, you know, he's got solemn faces on and is, you know, coming from all directions. <laughs> True. John is no wonder John turned out so emo. He had no chance. All of his father figures are sad. <laughs> Ned and Tyrion and Rhaegar and Stannis and like... Maester Aemon is like the happy one among all the crew of John's mentors. Like, because at least, and even he is like a saddled blind man. Like, you know, John is all 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 of John's father figures. Like, yeah, have this sorrow about them, and Rhaegar and John, Rhaegar, no, Rhaegar and John, Rhaegar and Ned have that in common. This, oh yeah, this the sense of this the way Rhaegar is described of having the doom and grief about him. Ned very much has that as well, and of course, yes. Ned's doom and grief is about John and about the secrets <laughs> and about, about uh, yeah, and about Rhaegar, dying yeah. in her bed of blood. <laughs> yes, um, well done, but, George. Uh, exactly, <laughs> well well woven in, uh, but. Uh, uh, we were t- talking earlier about the dragons, and, and Jeff, you had, you had a, a great point we were discussing earlier about the, the Tyrion looking at the eyes and imagining they were watching him. Yeah, th- thanks. I, I, um, 
this this could have come up in the other chapter. We had a lot to cover in that one. Where, um, uh, but basically, Tyrion, as he's remembering back to the Red Keep and the dragons, he thinks, "quote When he had moved away, Tyrion could have sworn that the beast's empty eye sockets had watched him go." Unquote. And this is a motif that gets repeated in a number of point of view characters and characters that eventually become point of views in the story where the dragons are either looking at them or they think that they're looking at them, you know, people like Eddard. So in the last Eddard chapter, we didn't cover this in depth here, but I'll, I'll mention it here is that Eddard thinks, quote, uh, his dragon skulls, that is Eris II's dragon skulls, stared down from the walls. I rode the length of the hall in silence between the long rows of dragon, skull, of dragon skulls. It felt as though they were watching me somehow, unquote. And then Danny also has these two mentions of the dragons staring down at them. Um, she thinks back in her very first chapter in A Game of Thrones of how she imagines the um, the throne room of, of the Targaryens and the last dragon staring down sightlessly from the walls of the throne room. And then she thinks about it again in The House of the Undying, where she says where she sees the skulls of the dead dragons look down from its walls. And then later in A Game of Thrones, in um, we get it from Arya Stark, where she's kind of running around the uh, the the dungeon of, of the Red Keep, and she's you know chasing after Varys and Illyrio, and she comes across the skulls, and she thinks, "quote It's dead," she said aloud. "It's just a skull. It can't hurt me." Yet somehow the monsters seemed to know she was there. She could feel its empty eyes watching her through the gloom, and there was something in that dim, cavernous room that did not love her, unquote. And then finally, we also get uh, Barristan Selmy, who tells Daenerys in the, in the guise of Arston Whitebeard that, quote, I, yet I served for a time in King's Landing in the days when King Aerys sat the Iron Throne and walked beneath the dragon skulls that looked down from the walls of his throne room. Unquote. So there's a kind of a running motif that's especially strong in the first three books. It, it doesn't come up again in, in Feast or Dance, as far as I could tell in my research. Um, maybe it'll come up again in The Winds of Winter. But I, I didn't actually have any real theories behind it. I just I figured I would ask the two experts here in, in the room uh, about it because it just feels like something that Martin's emphasizing that the dragons are looking, the dragons are looking, the dragons are looking, even though they're dead. And I'm wondering what message or theme that Martin is trying to communicate with the dragons constantly staring down at people with their sightless, dead, hollowed out eyes. It struck me that there might be a parallel with the weirwood faces there. Uh, I mean, Aziz was talking earlier about the central metaphor of ice and fire and how they're uh, both opposites and in some senses, you know, synthesis, uh, and that could certainly apply here, where the, uh, you know, you get a sense from those passages, not just that people are being watched, but they're being judged. Like the dragon eyes are seeing to their core identity and seeing their sins and their mistakes and their weaknesses. And you very much get that sense with the weirwoods too. There's that saying that no man can lie in front of a hard tree. Uh, Varamir Sixkins in the Dance with Dragons prologue, looks at the local weirwood and feels that the gods are judging him for all his horrible actions. You know, so much of the relationship to magic that we see in this series is about, uh, you know, foolish mortals messing with powers they don't, messing with powers they don't understand. And the dragons are a classic example of that over and over again. I mean, sometimes they're, they're managed well, but, you know, it's, it's so often a story of, of folly, especially trying to bring the dragons back. Uh, as Stannis has that great monologue about all the people who tried to do it and you know the mages failed Baylor's prayers went unanswered Arian bright flame died screaming you know it's just it's uh, these, these dreams of dragons have, have, have led to madness and I think the 
the dragon skulls are, are part of that, the way they're associated with Eris, uh, the way they're kind of associated with the past glory of the Targaryen regime. Uh, in, in the same way that, like, the old gods have this kind of collective consciousness way about them at the Weirwoods to kind of store these memories. The dragons feel... The dragon skulls and, to pick up another parallel, the, the skulls of the Golden Company, who have huh. the skulls of their Ooh. forebears kind of held before them. Uh, it's It's a... It's for me. It's like an image of, of of memory and legacy, and this is this is who we were, and this is who we're trying to live up to. But with the the weirwoods and the golden company skulls, it's like it's almost like you know we want to join them one day. You know, we're going to go back into the earth and be part of the faces in the trees. I, you know, I will command the golden company. I will carry these skulls, and one day my skull will be among these skulls. The dragon skulls, you don't get to join those. Like those are above you, and you know, kind of looming down and. Uh, the the person who wanted to try to be a dragon was Eris, and look how that turned out. Look look yeah. how that could have turned out if he'd been allowed to 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 carry out his wildfire plot. So, yeah, I I, I, I kind of see them as weirwood parallels, but also kind of in a more uh, dangerous and uh, and destructive and way. I mean, you know, Tyrion Tyrion finding them beautiful is part and parcel of him staring into the fire and imagining his family burning. You know, it's. <laughs> it's a dragons are beautiful, but should we find them beautiful? Should we just see them as monsters, or should we should we appreciate them? I think that's that's a question we see uh, running through the series, and I think that comes up with those skulls. You got me with the got me in a different line of thinking here with some of that. Um, not different, but something that I hadn't thought of before, which is that you're right that they're the, that they're the weight of history is behind these these skulls, and. You're right to compare them to the werewoods, which I think is really interesting. And I think that's really what got me on this line of thinking, the comparison to the werewoods. And the fact that you... But the, the, really, the thing that really seals is, is just now you brought up that you can't be a part of that. With the werewoods, when you die or whatever, you become a part. You can still you can become a part of that network. You become part of nature again or what have you. Uh, but with, with the dragons, it's just destruction. And that's part of the ice and fire dichotomy. Ice preserves, fire destroys... And so that fits in really well with that whole theme of uh, I, the you know ice holds things and they last forever. The others, you know, the the dragons are more uh, temperamental. They burn out, you know, and they're they're gone. And they come back or something like that. Interesting. I don't, and uh, yeah, that's good. I, it's also just just cool, right? Like just dragon skulls are neat. <laughs> Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> they just it's like whoa, dragon skulls, man. That's uh, that's pr- it's pretty awesome. I mean, that's why Robert had to put him away, because they were, you know, they were more powerful than him. They were mocking him from the walls. They were, you know, the that sentiment we've talked about before, Jeff, about Robert feeling like that Rhaegar beat him. The dragon yes. skulls exemplify that. Yes. And even from, the, even from the grave, House Targaryen is still more impressive than you, Stag King. <laughs> the dragons are just connected always with people reaching for power and often uh, trying to grasp a star, overreach and fail, to quote John Collington. <laughs> and I think... And I think that 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 and that fits the overall themes of this chapter, where you got characters trying to get in touch with who they are and how they can fit into official institutions. I think the dragon skulls fit that nicely. Hey, there's another little tw- uh, connecting point here too that I just realized. If you think about the the werewoods, you know, the old gods are potentially the the green seers or just the uh, everyone who's gone into the trees. There, that kind of is the old gods by a lot of people's interpretation. Well, the dragons are named after Valyrian gods too. They have the names of Valyrian gods. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's Moraxes, Vagar, and Valerian were all named after Valerian gods, which is kind of cool. That's just an interesting. That's a uh, brings me to another related topic, which is that 
so much of what we're given in A Song of Ice and Fire has a lot of framework to build around, which means, which allows us to triangulate. When we, you know, you have three data points, you can sometimes figure out a fourth or fifth one by what those three together mean. You can't do that if you have nothing, right? So what I mean by that is in this scene, uh, Tyrion recalls that one of the skulls is 3,000 years old, which is crazy old and yes. awesome at the same time. And now, if we didn't know anything about 3,000 years ago, that would just sound cool. It's like, oh, that's a really old dragon skull. But we know uh, we can triangulate a lot of data about what happened 3,000 years ago. Not very much specifically, but we know that the Freehold was around. We can guess that... that uh, House Targaryen may not have been a thing yet. You know, they may have come along in a century or two later or a thousand years later, for all we know. <laughs> and uh, it also tells us, about, I mean, consider that the Doom was 400 years prior to the start of the book. So 3,000 years ago, that's, you know, Balerion died uh, of old age around the age of 200. So if that's typical, if 200 is somewhat typical for a dragon, then that would mean maybe the dragon was about 3,200 years old. Wow. Uh, which, you know, if you put that in real world terms, let's think. 3,200 years ago on Earth, we're in the Bronze Age, the end of the Bronze Age. That's around the time of the Trojan War. So just that's super ancient history. And so that would be incredibly ancient to the people of you know, to Westeros, too. Like, ob like, if I'm trying to I was trying to think of other things in Westeros that are that old. And the only thing I could think of was Dawn and several of the castles, you know, because <laughs> it, cause it sure. sounds like House. Royce's armor isn't really the original set that they've, you know, made new ones or whatever. So that one I kind of discounted, but I really couldn't think of it because none of the Valyrian steel blades are that old, I don't think. No. Maybe they, they could be. Oh, certainly no. But probably mm. not. Yeah, maybe. And so just, so, that's all I could think of was castles and uh, Dawn. That's it. <laughs> so that's like, hey, that's one of the second largest, non, second oldest non-castle thing in all of Westeros. Um... But there's more, too. Uh, one thing that's kind of... This is super deep and nerdy detail level here. Which <laughs> We're all is, about that. All right. Well, here we go, then. The, the dragon <laughs> sizes. Uh, interestingly, Tyrion thinks that Meraxes' skull was bigger than Vagar's, which is kind of interesting because... Well, we know that Meraxes and Vagar were born on Dragonstone. And we know that the Targaryens came to Dragonstone, you know, after the Doom. Or before the Doom. Just before the Doom. So... There's a limited amount of time frame there, um, that, and then given when the conquest was. So, and we know exactly how old Vagar was. Vagar died at the, uh, when she was 181 years old. So for Vagar's skull, at 181 years old, to be smaller than Meraxes, who probably was only 60 to 80 years old, implies a mm. giant dragon. Because we're also told dragons keep growing. They never stop growing. So if you have a 181-year-old <laughs> dragon that's still smaller than one that didn't live even half as long, that implies that either Vagar was pretty darn small or Meraxes was truly gigantic. And <laughs> I almost think that if Meraxes had grown old, she might have been grown bigger than Valerian. Uh, but wow. that's who knows? Yeah. So that's all, like I said, kind of irrelevant, but pretty fun. And uh, just a good example, another example of, of we couldn't have figured that out without all the other details George has given us, like the detail about Balerion's age comes from Barristan in a random comment. The detail about, uh, or sorry, that's the, the age of, um, Balerion, yes. And the age of Vagar comes from the princess and the queen, you know, like these, these things come from all over the place, but they tell a story when you put them together. And, uh, yeah. 
And that's what we talked about at the beginning of this episode is how this stands the test of time. Like these details still line up. He didn't, George didn't, didn't uh, drop the ball. He was juggling so many balls at once. And I guess partly in thanks to his, his brain and his editors, these, these details <laughs> don't contradict each other. Very, very rarely do we find something that just doesn't work. Yeah, that's, that's well very said, true. <clears throat> Absolutely. And uh, it, it's cool for, uh, you know, for those of you guys who've never listened to History of Westeros podcast is that they actually pull all of these details and threads together into a really great, compelling narrative um, that, that talks about these things. So, I, I mean, I don't mean to plug you guys too early, uh, before, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's, it is one of those things that's, that's really cool um, is being able to have uh, someone who has a wealth of knowledge and information and to, uh, yeah, use all of those resources that that George has provided, whether it's the books, the novellas, or the history books or interviews in the Sospeak Martin archive and kind of create fantastic and wonderful content that gives us a really great uh, a view of what the, the picture that George is trying to paint. Um, Thank you very but, much. Oh, absolutely. But the, uh, the, the, the skulls, though, in that, that Tyrion sees in the Red Keep are lead they lead Tyrion into a greater conversation topic or in his own mind and that's where he goes in super deep into a major event that essentially concluded Aegon's conquest and that is being the field of fire so one of the many many reasons we invited Aziz to come on today was to talk about the field of fire it doesn't exactly occur in this chapter but it is kind of it occurs in Tyrion's mind and his memory of the history and of the characters and the players and the outcome there. So uh, I did kind of skim up through it in my in my chapter summary, but now is a bit as some time for a little bit more depth. Uh, again, we get a great summary from Tyrion about the field of fire, but the world of ice and fire expands it even more, uh, expands our understanding even more about the event. So uh, Aziz, can you give us a little background about the field of fire, the events, the kings, the commanders, and the stakes? Sure thing. Uh, so we start with, at the point the Field of Fire happens, already the Vale and the Iron Islands, meaning the Kingdom of the Isles and Riverlands, because of course the Iron Islands at that at that point ruled the Riverlands. So the Riverlands are have uh, are in Aegon's control. The Ironlands have surrendered. The Stormlands have also been conquered, and so has the Vale, uh, without any fighting in that case. Uh, well, not the Erie anyway. There was fighting at Gulltown. But <clears throat> as far as, so this is basically the West and the Reach realize they're facing a huge, you know, formidable foe, someone who's been able to do all this. But their problem is they don't know how to fight this enemy. So they just do what they always do, which is just <laughs> load up their, get on their horses, grab their swords and spears and bows and, and ride out in, in formation. They they didn't do, you know, they needed to do more like what the Dornish did. Yes. Or like the the Vale or the North, which is kind of just surrender. <laughs> <laughs> so what, um, what made this battle different was the size of it, for one thing. there It was the largest army ever seen in Westeros, something like 55,000 men, something wow. around there, uh, 50 or 55,000. I think this. I think the show and the book give slightly different numbers, and they get crossed up sometimes. But roughly around that number, and Aegon had not even a, not even a quarter of that, but he had his dragons. He had all three of them, and this is the other thing that makes this battle unique: is that it's the only battle that all three dragons were unleashed at, 
And he had there's some strategy. We have the not a whole lot of strategy on the side of the West and the Reach. They, like I said, kind of just did what they always do: try to find a place they can fight where their horses can charge. You know, where they can get a good head of steam for their uh, war horses. And uh, this, you'd think that this would be an advantage for them. They, they get to choose the terrain. But the problem was that it was a very uh, dry and dusty. And what Aegon did was he set his dragons to lighting parts of the battlefield on fire before the battle so that both to use as barriers so that it would be harder for his smaller army to be flanked, to be surrounded, to prevent encirclement, but also to cause confusion. And uh, this is lots of dust and fire and heat, and that causes uh, that's going to be a larger problem for a larger army, especially a larger army that's not ready for that. Their their ability to communicate with, with each other, especially with having two different commanders, you have the West and the Reach, and they're not... The, the King of the Reach isn't taking orders from the King of the West and, and vice versa. Right. So that's another disadvantage. Despite their overwhelming numbers, they didn't have a... You know, Aegon's strategy was better for a lot of reasons, uh, just command structure and just his plan. So, I like the... Uh, I, 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 I like the... Uh, in the world of Ice and Fire, because I, I reread the chapter uh, today on, on it just to get kind of refreshed on it, how mm-hmm. Aegon and his sister wives both, they all knew that it was the dry season and they used the wheat field and they were lighting fires because one of the things that comes up, um, was it Rainies who was uh, not Rainies? Was it Rainies who was fighting in the, in the stormlands and they were fighting in that major yeah, that rainstorm that was going on. So they couldn't use their dragon as effectively in the battle, but here they have dry weather. They use the terrain really well. They're just, the, the Targaryens definitely had the advantage of having a, a better conception of how to manage the the tactical aspects of this battle than 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 the Lannisters and and the uh, rather than the Reach and then the Westermen definitely did. It's very much like the Battle of the Blackwater on land. You had they kind of got suckered into sending a large force into an uncertain situation that they kind of blundered into confidently and got incinerated. So <laughs> and the chain, the equivalent of the chain in this case were those were those fires that were lit ahead of the battle. So when they charged and, they, you know, we already pointed out that they couldn't encircle the smaller army. They were also kind of boxed in. So it made it easier for the dragons to just, like, bake them all because they couldn't run in certain directions because there were already fires there. So they were really quite uh, a perfect target for <laughs> the the dragons. It's, it's very similar to what happened on the TV show because in the TV show, Danny specifically rot flies behind the Lannister lines and burns all the the loot train the all the the wagons instead of burning the soldiers and that creates a wall they're stuck behind it and so when the Dothraki charge the the you know the Lannister armies have a direction they can't flee in which is cuts off their escape and allows the Dothraki to do even more damage so yeah that's a lot of parallels here to that battle and to other other stories that are going to come later. But I actually think the most interesting thing about all this is that something that about about George R. R. Martin's writing style is that his historical dives are very often foreshadowing. So I'm I'm, I'm a huge oh, yeah. fan of history, but let's compare 
Uh, but let's stick it stick to fantasy. If we compare Tolkien to George R. R. Martin, I'm not, and I don't mean like who's better. I just mean just a compare <laughs> comparison of style. Tolkien's Middle Earth. If we're being fair, Tolkien's Middle Earth is more developed than A Song of Ice and Fire is, but his world building has less to do with the plot of of Lord of the Rings than, say, The World of Ice and Fire does with A Song of Ice and Fire. Silmarillion is a great book, but it doesn't really teach you a whole lot about where Lord of the Rings is going or, no. you know, it teaches you about the things that you see in it and it gives you a lot of backstory. It's really fun. But The World of Ice and Fire gives you, like, direct clues to what's going to happen. <laughs> and this field of fire, as we've just shown, is a lot of foreshadowing for future battles. And apart from the battle itself, I think one of the most interesting things is what that's going to mean for Tyrion his internal struggle. And that's another thing the TV show kind of highlighted is that Tyrion's fighting his family now in the show. And that's probably going to come in the books as well. He's probably going to be fighting on the side of the Targaryens against the Lannisters. So the field of fire is kind of, he's thinking about it as this important historical event. He might be reliving it himself, but he'll be on, he'll be fighting against his family. And it's funny, Jeff, that you point out that, that, he laughs at how he's, he's glad his ancestor got away to breed, you know, and have more descendants like him. But uh, this particular descendant is going to fight against his family, him, you know, himself, meaning. So I think that's even, you know, as awesome as all that history is, as much as it's great to have the foreshadowing and tell you what it is. I think this bit about what it means for Tyrion is even more important and even more interesting. So that's the one yet more genius of A Song of Ice and Fire. You have vast epic history. That's really fun and interesting. That's that's part of the story, but it's still the character moments are what it's still all about. Oh yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's definitely it's it's rooted in the relationship between Tyrion and Jon and the very personal issues they're talking about. So if you want to tease out the larger historical implications, you can, but you can also just focus on these two characters. And yeah, like you said, I completely agree with what you said about Tolkien that uh, Middle Earth is kind of a, a richer historical world than Westeros. Uh, there are periods where Westeros seems to have stayed stagnant for large periods of time, or Martin just kind of hand waves the details. Uh, but I think Martin is a better writer than Tolkien in terms of integrating it dramatically. And that's in part because he's building on Tolkien. He's saying, here's what worked about Tolkien. Here's what I want to bring to it. Here's what I want to add to it. Tolkien's kind of a weird writer. I mean, I mean, no one, no one thinks they're inventing a genre when they invent a genre. No one, you know, Mary, Mary Shelley didn't imagine everything that was going to follow Frankenstein, of course. But uh, Tolkien specifically came at uh, fantasy so much more interested in the kind of historical legends and backstory and environment than he was concerned with like the beat by beat structure. Of the narrative, obviously, he was interested in the narrative, but he wasn't. You know, I think Martin's instincts as a TV writer serve him sometimes in terms of tightening things or making sure backstory always has an immediate dramatic purpose. That's a classic TV writing thing, right? If you're going to have a scene where characters explaining their backstory, you got to make sure it pays off. You got to make sure it ties in. You got to make sure there's a reason for the audience to remember this stuff. Uh, And I think that's exactly what uh, what we're talking about here with Tyrion bringing up the field of fire. And it may well have played out literally like that in terms of TV writing, because as you said, there is a, a version of a Field of Fire 2.0 in Season 7 of Game of Thrones when uh, Dany uh, attacks the uh, Lannister and uh, Tyrell forces. Now, now my major question is, in, in, the, in the TV show, the, the showrunners, uh, for better or for worse, they essentially abandoned the Young Griff, John Connington, Golden Company invasion sub 
I guess it's not really a subplot. It's, it's part of the central plot in A Song of Ice and Fire. In my mind, I don't necessarily see Daenerys roasting the Lannisters on the Field of Fire. I see it having more, it being involving Aegon and John Connington and all of, and Randall Tarly potentially and all these different types of factions in, in the, uh, in the narrative. And I think that's, in my mind, I, I feel like that's going to be where, where George takes the field of fire 2.0 at the same time though. I, I really like the show dynamic of having Tyrion. I, I remember it's a, it's a great scene from, uh, season seven, episode four, where, Tyrion crests a hill and he with a with two Dothraki and he's watching like the horror of the the Dothraki blood riders you know slaughtering Lannister men, but he also sees his his brother Jaime you know mounting uh, on, on aboard his horse and, uh, and and charging against Daenerys Targaryen and that's just a, an iconic moment I feel like in, in Game of Thrones it was one it was actually that that entire that whole scene where Jaime's charging across the literal field of fire was. Uh, probably a scene that made me fall back in love with Game of Thrones as a show. I mean, mm. I, I've I had liked Game of Thrones. Um, I, I had loved the earlier seasons uh, for sure, uh, and I and I had some disagreements, maybe some mild distaste for some of the things that happened in later seasons. Sometimes more major dislikes about it. But that scene where Jamie's is crossing the field of fire with Tyrion watching is just phenomenal, and I, and I do almost yes. I do almost wish that Martin would have it be Daenerys versus the Lannisters. Maybe she will, but it does feel like that's more of a, a thing that's going to happen with Aegon because eventually, because Martin has said that the second Dance of the Dragons is going to occur mm-hmm. in The Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring, and that is most likely, in my mind, going to be something that takes place between Aegon and Daenerys. Just to add to what you were saying, one thing that made that scene also great was Arya's moment with the Lannister soldiers. So that you have some feeling for the common foot soldier in that in that experience and you'd realize that there some of them are decent people or they just don't they're not here because they want to be here they're here because they were drafted right. uh, they were forced to be there and so i think that really also added to that scene giving like you said there's a lot of uh Tyrion's personal feelings are huge in that moment but so are uh we actually get to feel a little bit for just the, the rank and file as well which i think is a cool little uh thing that they did well yeah yeah that's a that's a great point i agree jeff that uh, I think Danny is more specifically going to be bringing fire and blood to uh, Team Egon, to Young Griff. Uh, the Mummer's Dragon prophecy points in that direction from the House of the Undying, if nothing else. I think I agree, though, that there is an interesting dynamic, too, between Danny coming down on the Lannister regime specifically, and I wonder if Martin might split the difference there by having Danny focus on vengeance, well, vengeance slash war on Team Egon when she arrives, and having Tyrion focus on Casterly Rock and his family. Um, mm. In the sh- in the show, obviously Tyrion has not moved in as dark a direction as he has in the books. The, he kind of recovered a lot quicker from the deaths of Tywin and Shay than he did in the Dance with Dragons. Uh, in the books, I expect Tyrion, especially in regards to his ad- role as advisor to Danny, to be moving in a more kind of violent and vengeful direction. So they might uh, Martin might kind of split the la- separate the labor amongst the two and have yeah. Danny focus on destroying Team Egan and the uh, the downfall of the Lannister regime specifically might be handed over to Tyrion especially especially with Tyrion hiring the second sons to help him take Casterly Rock to help him out both logistically and can I, given the name second son is of course perfectly representative of Tyrion's relationship to House Lannister yes so maybe that'll be his, maybe that'll be his focus specifically because I I agree the 
uh, the, I like the way they handled that scene in the show, and specifically the the Lannister regime dealing with the return of the Targaryens is very dramatic, given the involvement of House Lannister in the downfall of the Targaryens in the first place. That's Absolutely. a good theory. I'm splitting it up that way because, yeah, like it's going to be hard for her to just focus on one enemy if there if there's multiples. Yeah, it's kind of because otherwise otherwise we're looking at Aegon having completely dealt with the Lannisters by the time Danny gets there, which. I can imagine him having. I can imagine yeah. him having pushed them back severely, but completely beating them seems pretty unlikely. Like taking Castle Rock without a without like a dragon or Tyrion's knowledge of the drain seems pretty unlikely. Yeah, I agree. I think it more likely is Egan takes King's Landing, and that's as far as he gets before Danny shows up. Yes, uh, I agree. When they start yeah. fighting, and that you. I mean, you have all the setup which they dealt with someone in the show about Tyrion knowing the sewer systems of the Rock. And that seems very much like a setup for him being involved in taking the rock. So I would say, yeah, that Field of Fire takes place in the context of Danny going to war with Team Egan, but that the Westerlands themselves and Casterly Rock at that point are not under Egan's control, but under Lannister control, and that Tyrion uh, is the one that deals with that on Danny's behalf. And to kind of circle back to well, to that uh, second question by uh, by Lady Emily, um, Martin has said we will see Casterly Rock in the Winds of Winter. And, and or a dream of spring, depending on how far the narrative advances in the winds of winter. So I, I can definitely see Tyrion being the person that infiltrates Casterly Rock if, uh, if in the event that, uh, I don't know, someone like Cersei or Jaime flee back to Casterly Rock and they're there. And that's that's how Tyrion, uh, we, we get that kind of um, the, the, the pathos that were definitely uh, involved in the loot train battle from uh, from season seven, for sure. Exactly. Or it might, you know, you may be involved Tyrek Lannister somehow. There's plenty of theories that Varys was involved with the disappearance of Tyrion's cousin that he might have in mind as a puppet lord of Casterly Rock, as a witness against Cersei, some kind of weapon. So uh, maybe the struggle over the Westerlands will have that involved. Obviously, he's not as central to the drama as someone like Cersei or Jaime. But uh, if you do, if if Egan's regime does take over and has the need of a puppet lord for the West, I imagine Tyrek would be their their candidate. Chekhov's Tyrek. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Chekhov's heir? What is it? We need a term for that. There's a lot of those in Game of Thrones. <laughs> there are, exactly. There are, there are hidden princes everywhere. According to the fandom, there's a lot more that, uh, you know, <laughs> even without the fandom, there's quite a few. <laughs> just, just from George. This is true. This is true. <laughs> we like it that way, though. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's awesome when we look at back at the uh, the history and and seeing how martin weaves it into the narrative and we see that throughout the world of ice and fire and i'm sure we'll see it in fire and blood volume one which is apparently coming in october of this oh year, yeah which i know mm-hmm. that uh, the folks from history of westeros are definitely going to be uh, diving into and i really uh, again to plug you guys again your episodes right after the publication of the world of ice and fire were excellent and i can't Thank wait you. to see what you guys come up with in uh, for fire and blood volume one I'm excited for that too. Uh, it's it's you know it's it'll be new material, so that's great. Exactly uh, right. Can't wait. That's going to be fun, fun. Even though a lot of it, well, a lot of it won't actually be new, but a lot of it will. Whatever is new, I'm ready for. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. I think that about wraps us up for this episode on a Game of Thrones Tyrion two. Thank you guys so much for listening to us and uh, and supporting us and. Uh, and yeah, and thank you so much to Aziz for joining us, man. We've had a really in-depth and great conversation about this chapter and all the things unfolding, all the different unfoldings of this chapter, rather. I think I learned several new things about this chapter just while we were recording it, let alone while preparing Same for here. it. And as you said, Same I've here. probably read this 20 times. So 
damn, George, you rich, you deep. <laughs> exactly right. Can't close it off better than that. Uh, so, Aziz, where can we find you, and what are you guys planning for the, your next couple episodes? And uh, I don't know, plug your shit, bro. Cool. All right. Well, uh, first of all, thanks so much for having me. This was a fantastic discussion. Um, it's it's great to be able to talk to people who have you know a, a similar level of obsession and uh, experience <laughs> with the topic. I mean, it's just yeah, it's great. We're all like, I don't know the right word, but. Uh, we're on the, we're, we're all together. Yeah, this you know the I thing where you right. I don't know the, the, the whatever the the word for the you see what I did there. <laughs> I, I need agree. a word for that. I so, agree. Okay, so so where to find us? That's uh, on iTunes. We are History of Westeros. It's also we are History of Westeros on Acast and Google Play and SoundCloud. On YouTube, we are Westeros History. Basically the same thing. You could probably find us with either search term. Our recent episodes include a House Manderley Part 1 and ain't mostly looking at the ancient stuff and uh, the second part will focus on the more modern stuff starting with the uh, around the time of the conquest. And there's a lot there. There's a lot more than we thought we would find. We thought that would be one part episode and it just grew on us. We also are doing um, wrapping up our Blackfire Rebellion series. Seven episodes we've done on that and there's going to be two more. Um, one second half of Blood Raven, and the other one will be another Blood Raven episode, but that will be not really Blackfire stuff, because that's going to be Blood Raven uh, once he goes to the wall and uh, being a three-eyed crow and all that. <laughs> um, so that's that, and um, we also have an episode on Nymeria and the 10,000 ships coming up at some point in the future. Sweet. And uh, Whatever we do after Fire, and like you said, Fire and Blood, when that comes out, Radio Westeros, um, we're going to team up and do uh, uh, some episodes on the Dance of the Dragons. We talked about doing that a while back, and just now we actually have a, we can draw a line in the sand and we can start working on that, because we know, well, Fire and Blood, uh, that's, we're getting that, the Dance of the Dragons, that falls into that uh, time frame, so... Anything as far as new stuff on the Dance of the Dragons, we probably won't get much after Fire and Blood, but besides the occasional mention in, uh, you know, the Winds of Winter or maybe beyond. But most of what we'll know about it, we'll know by then. So we'll be able to put a nice uh, batch of episodes together for y'all. And that's about uh, it. That's that should fun. cover it. We'll uh, we're, we keep doing it, and keep turning it out. Right on. That most recent House Manderly episode is excellent. I especially recommend that. So you can. Uh, uh, find us in many of the same places you can find History of Westeros. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and Podbean and all places where good, standard, red-blooded American podcasts are found. <laughs> uh, you can find us in social media at notacastasoif on Twitter or our email notacastasoif at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacastasoif uh, to get rewards including special episodes, show notes, thank yous, and so forth. Uh, personally speaking, you can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter and at portquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brennan B. Fish on Twitter, Brennan B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. And just to, uh, if you guys are interested, again, just to give one more plug for Patreon, um, our first ever Patreon only episode all about the fate of Sir Barristan Selmy and whether he is going to survive the Battle of Fire and or die at the second field of fire which is something we talked about in this episode pretty extensively uh is going to is is out now by the time you listen to this episode so check us out there it's uh for those of you who are interested in in uh supporting us 
You can listen to that episode for a mere $5 a month, and we'll have a monthly Patreon-only episode for your guys' enjoyment. And, uh, and yeah, so, yeah, I think that about covers it. Join us next week for yet another attempt on poor Bran's life. Man, that guy just doesn't catch a break. Uh, <laughs> with the Game of Thrones Catelyn 3. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for Aziz for joining us. And we will see you guys next week. Yes, indeed. The Nauticast podcast is written and recorded by Poor Quentin and Brendan Beefish, as well as Aziz from History of Westeros. The music you heard is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit, and the, and the closing song is called A Last Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Sorry we didn't get to our thank yous this week. We will try to do it next week. Thanks. Take care. Bye for now.